Welcome to Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. I'm your co-host, Russ, and over there is Mike. How you doing, Mike? And I'm in a good mood because it's been a really great listening week. These are all uh, really enjoyable albums for the most part. I think I enjoyed everything that we heard yeah, this week. Yeah, me too. Lots of good stuff. And we're here with episode 111. We're going to bring you our usual mix of three classical and three jazz recordings. And remember, you can find links to those for Spotify and Apple Music in the description below the episode. And also at the top of the description, there's a link for the full episode playlist. If you'd like, you can get all the music in one place on Deezer. That's our favorite CD quality streaming platform. And you can also follow the podcast there if you'd like. Get the music in the podcast in the same place. Just look us up, Adult Music Podcast. And if you don't see the full description or the recording list on whatever app you happen to be listening to us on, you can always come over and check us out on our host site, which is podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's easy to follow. All the links are active there. And I'd like to let listeners know, if you do listen on Podbean, they have a new chapter function where you can skip to the discussion of a particular album. I usually include the timestamps on our Facebook page. But, uh, they'll be available in Podbean as well. I don't think they transfer over when the podcast goes to uh, Apple Podcasts and so forth. If you enjoy the podcast, please do follow or subscribe wherever you prefer to listen to us. And tell a friend, if you've got any musically inclined friends, someone who wants to get into classical or jazz music, doesn't know where to start, uh, we'll give you six recordings every week to get going on. Also, if you give us a ranking or write a review, that helps us get listed in the browsing category recommendations. Also, come over and follow us on our Facebook page. You can get extra info, new releases throughout the week. There was a bunch of jazz I put up this week, all good stuff. Hopefully, we'll get to some of those recordings on the podcast. And you can leave a message or a comment there. And if you'd like to get in touch with us directly by email with any questions or comments, we'd be happy to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word at gmail.com. We're also sharing our audience with some other podcasts about music. Check these out if you need some more music-related things to hear during the week. We've got Tom Galker's Something Came From Baltimore. It's a jazz, blues, and R&B interview podcast with lots of uh, famous artists interviewed there every week. We've got famous interviews in Neon Jazz from Joe Domino, who interviews artists, musicians, and writers. Then we've got The Same Difference, Two Jazz Fans, One Jazz Standard. It's a podcast that compares new versions of old jazz standards and they play little bits of each one and talk about the history and what they like and don't like about different versions of that so you can up your jazz knowledge and that's going to come in handy tonight on a couple of these recordings that we're going to hear yeah i'm still not up to date but i do listen to that podcast i've become a, a big fan my jazz knowledge is expanding good yeah not like brooklyn <laughs> i'm gonna quiz you tonight and see if you you're gonna quiz me i'm not gonna, I'm gonna fail the quiz i'm just <laughs> not gonna know because i'm not gonna remember how these things go okay yeah i'm not really sure that we're the uh we're, we're such a good podcast for telling people where to start because we're just kind of in the middle of things you know yeah. we're just kind of informing people about new recordings that are coming out i think if you're don't if you want to know where to start with jazz, you should go back to the golden age, really, probably. But we it helps to have a basis, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I see mainly as what we do as uh, giving you a bit of navigation through the new material because it's, you know, coming out uh, every day. So many recordings, and you can't find them listed in the recommendations on the streaming services. You've got to scour yeah. through the new release lists, which is what I take pleasure in doing, and try to pick up you know things and organize them around a theme. And uh, at least that right. gives you a, 
hopefully exposure to new artists that you wouldn't hear about otherwise. Right. I have a friend who was, uh, he's trying to get into classical music. Trying is a good word. He likes it, but he doesn't really know what he's listening to. Mm. And um, now he's into like, he's decided, you know, like most people get into it by Baroque music or something like that. And it's pretty um, digestible, but he wants to go via the adagio. Like he kind of thinks of this as a genre of music. It's not, it's like a tempo marking mm. and it's, uh you know, it just indicates, uh, yeah, but composers in the 20th century, late 19th century started to really expand these out so that they're really, really long. And now he's listening to like the uh, Bruckner adagio from the Seventh Symphony, which we talked about, I yeah, believe, yeah. last week. Last week, right? yeah. Yeah, but and then he wants me to kind of explain it to him. And I'm like, oh, man, you know, because he doesn't really know anything about, you know, cadences and stuff like that. So, right. and Bruckner is like way advanced than just like the, the Mozart <laughs> or Haydn, you know, cadence. Yeah. Like he, he's using like substitute chords to like expand the cadence so that you don't hear it right away. And, and he's got a very unique style all his own. So it's kind of mm -hmm. hard to talk him through that. I kind of wish he'd start with something shorter <laughs> so I could build him up to that. But that's yeah. where he wants to be. He likes the soothing quality of it. And it is, that's one yeah. reason to listen to it. So, you know. There you go. So any news this week? Anything happening in the, uh, the jazz end? Because in the classical end, not much. There's just a lot of good uh, new releases coming out. Yeah, that's about it. New releases, no other good news or bad news that I heard of. So Yeah, I've got loads of um, potential material for the coming really months at this point. Oh, we could do so many. There are lots of things coming out now, so I can do themed episodes again if we want to do that. But anyway, tonight's theme, we're not really sure what tonight's theme is yet. It's sort of, I think after listening to all six of these albums, it's some, It's going to be something like, um, you know, quick changes or something. Because yeah. um, this is really, we heard quite a bit of music uh, for the internet age where your attention <laughs> is constantly being drawn to something new. And I'll get into that, especially later. But first, we're going to start with um, our Baroque sort of recording certainly baroque era music this is music by marie marais the french um he's he's baroque viol like composer and this right. is called works and transcriptions but it's played by jean guillen Queira on the cello and alexandre tarot on the piano modern instruments i don't think i've ever heard marie's works played on modern instruments i've heard a lot of other french baroque composers on the piano because that's become, that's coming to vogue, but not this. And this is pretty interesting. It's on the Harmonia Mundi label, and it's an album of transcriptions of Marais' works for solo viol, for cello and piano. So originally it was just for one viol, but uh, I guess they fleshed out the harmony and uh, oh, there might have been a harpsichord, you know, accompanying too. Like, it might have been a what do you call it? A continuo, they would say. But I'm not really sure about that. Anyway, but this is for the cello and piano, and the cello doesn't really sound like the viol. They're in the same family of instruments. The cello is like the modern, sleeker, quicker, sexier sort of um, relative of the, uh, the, the viols, and the bass viol in this case. You can play quicker and more athletically on it. But Marais' sound world really belongs to the viol. Now, most of us, I've mentioned this before, discovered Marais' music from the movie in the 1980s, Tout le matin du monde, which features the composer Marais learning from his teacher Saint Colombe, and it's got a lot of great um, discussions about music in it. It's a good movie mm. still. You should check it out. I think uh, Gerard Depardieu is in it. <laughs> when I was playing this uh, during the week, my wife said, it sounds like Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but... I think, I think she means it sounds like that time. <laughs> oh, it could Maybe. be, yeah. I thought that the uh, cello tone um 
you know, I like vinyl music, but uh, I thought he evokes a good mood that uh, still put me in the same spirit uh, with the cello on this recording. It did. I was really captivated by this album. And um, this isn't new for um, the pianist Tarot. He put out a, a very likable album of French Baroque keyboard works called Versailles in 2019, which I really liked. Uh, is a very different um, feel than on the harpsichord. Now, if you remember, I've mentioned that uh, the French pay a lot of attention to timbre when they compose. And as a result, they'll have like, say, if you're playing for the flute, you know, it'll sound, the melody will, I don't know how else to explain this, sound very fluty. You know, it'll sound like something that really needs to be played by a continuous breath with that timbre. And mm-hmm. a good example of that would be if you go to Debussy's um, A Prelude de l'Apremedi d'Enfant, the opening flute line. You just can't imagine that being played on any other instrument. There are piano reductions of it, so you can play it on the piano, mm-hmm. but there's a sensuous quality. They really draw, He really draws out the sensuous quality of the flute in that piece, and it's not going to sound sensuous on any other instrument because it's just, I don't know, somehow the contours of it are really suited for the flute. This is already true in baroque era music this the music that they write really sound that french composers wrote in the era really sounded great for the instruments that they were written for they drew out the colors of the harpsichord and things like that so when you play this on the piano it was said oh something would be lost but now i'm not so sure i think we just get something different and certainly taro and um Keira here are doing a lot to imitate the they're aware of the baroque playing the the period instrument playing mm-hmm. technique that we've had for 30 years so they're not just playing these like their modern works but they're kind of creating a sound like on their instruments that's appropriate for their instrument their modern instrument but it's the phrasing is more from the uh period instrument right. sort of um idea i'll try to make that a little clearer as i talk about this it's a little hard to explain but it's a real discovery i thought Let's uh, give a listen here. Now, first of all, we have the first two tracks are Suite and La Mineure, or A Minor. And this is from uh, Marais' Troisième Lièvre de Piste de Viol. And I think we're going to hear this entire suite spread out throughout the album. It's um, different tracks from it. Different movements of it are dispersed through the album. And I'll mention them when they come up. I should say on this, the uh, descriptions for the tracks, I copied the names from... The Presto music suite, but there's okay. actually even more detail. When I was listening to it on Deezer, sometimes it would take half the track for all of the information to scroll through my <laughs> player. There was so so many additions to the you know just the movement and the tempo and the descriptions that um, there's a lot there. You, the you know what it probably was? They probably gave the entire name of the collection. Yeah. of uh, pieces of, that it that it was in and they're usually very long yeah, it was really long <laughs> they're usually something like third book of vile pieces for the uh the artist of consummate taste and you know yeah. etc and it just goes on forever <laughs> i didn't i didn't write all that into my no. <laughs> uh my apple um music app to do that anyway the, the thing that's really striking about this now i want to recommend if anybody out there has listens to a lot of Baroque music played on period instruments. And if you are listening to Baroque music, that's probably what you're hearing. For years, all of it was played on period instruments for about, there was a good 20 year period, 25 year period, where it was just the domain of these like specialists, these uh, period instrument players. And it was really exciting because it was a new sound. But now we've heard that sound for such a long time that going back to these uh, contemporary instruments really (laughs) makes a big uh, impression because we're so not used to hearing this music 
on contemporary instruments anymore. One of the things that periodismans did is it had everybody playing faster because you you couldn't really get as good sustain on the period instrument, so the, mm. the tempo sped up. And if you remember, I remember the, the the bad old 1970s when you'd hear like Vivaldi played by gigantic orchestras, and it was <laughs> just really slow. And this uh, didn't sound like spring at all, you know. But then you hear mm. the um, the sprightly rhythms that we get uh, from the period instruments, and um, it's, it sounds a lot more spring-like. And now we're getting that sort of springy technique on these. Uh, modern instruments. Anyway, track one, the prelude of this suite, has a big sounding piano opening. I was a little bit surprised by this. I was like, oh, he's really not going for that Baroque sound. But there's no pedal on this at all. It's a very dry sound. There is a lot of reverb, though, on the cello, meaning like the room sound. There's like a lot of like that kind of ambient Mm -hmm. bloom on the notes as they come out because he's playing very loud. Uh, the ear quickly adjusts to this, and it's it's not a bad thing. It's just that you're so used to hearing the harpsichord sounding so dry and, and close that this came mm. as a big surprise. Um, by track two, I was accepting the sound like readily, so this is about a 70-minute, oh, it's about a little more than an hour, and uh, right away I just kind of took to this. You know, it took me like a one track to adjust to it. The playing is bright like it's a modern chamber work. Uh, no concessions to period instrument in the um the timbre of the instruments let's say although there are in other pieces but this is not romantic playing and Keira, the uh, cellist manages to get the feel of Marais' work on the cello there's mm-hmm. great sensitivity from both artists especially noticeable in quieter passages sensitivity is going to be a key word on this uh, recording when they get into quiet passages boy they just get this these beautiful gossamer light sounds and um these little sort of attenuated, you'll have like volume and then it'll just attenuate to something quieter at the end of phrases, just beautifully shaped all the way through. These are really great uh, performances. It's just going to be a question of whether you like the, um, the, the, the actual sound. I liked it a lot. Second uh, track is a gavotte, a kind of dance, and the dance rhythm is well realized here. This was another thing about the bad old 70s is they, they never got the dance phrases. They just didn't bother. They're just reading from the score. <laughs> Um, we're more aware of these things now. And that, to me, makes classical music a lot more exciting because I feel like we're more in that sort of world when we hear the, the rhythms well realized. Uh, the sensitivity of both players allows the subtlety of the piece to come through. And again, beautiful shaping of phrases. All right, we go into track three. This is from Suite and La Minor. I should, I'll just say A minor. Quatrième livre, the fourth book of viol pieces. I'll give you English for this, Okay. Rumbling bass in the piano and a trill in the right hand as the cello plays the folk dance melody. The bass is supposed to be a drone, so you're hearing two notes um, being played like trilling sort of in the bass. And it's supposed to be imitating the musette, which is sort of like a lighter sounding French version of the Scottish bagpipes, which is a Mm. gigantic heavy Win, window breaking sound. (laughs) But uh, the musette is much lighter than that. And... um, I guess shepherds or people out in the uh, more rustic parts of the country used to play them. And for all I know, probably still do. The qualities of the rustic folk instrument are well realized, particularly in the repeating piano chord at the one minute mark. The piano really is just providing the the musette effects as the cello plays the melody. Track four is the longest track on the album by far, clocking it at almost 18 minutes. It's a couplet de folie d'Espagne. So it's going to be a set of um, variations. I, I'm guessing this is the La Folia. 
um, chord progression. And this is from the second book of viol pieces by Marais. We hear the theme right away. It's pretty plain and square up to the 42nd mark. And then the variations start. And uh, these are all played for contrast one against the other. They're very easy to follow because of the when the one variation ends and another begins, there's a really big change of texture, tempo, and just the overall approach. Uh, the first one is light. The rhythm is well caught. And it's just lifting of the heart. I really just liked it a lot. It put me in good spirits right away. And uh, I kept those high spirits throughout the 18 minutes of this track. And the next one is a bit heavier. Again, contrast. And each variation comes in quick succession. They're all pretty short. And the textural contrast of them makes them easily recognizable when there's a new one. I really love the quietness and sensitivity of the variation at 5 minutes and 23 seconds. The piano's forays into the high end in the equally sensitive variation at the 7 minute and 40 second mark. Uh, there's a fantastic quickly bowed variation at 8 minutes and 40 seconds, which makes one wonder how a viol can achieve this. I almost kind of wanted to go back and see if I had a recording of this on the bass viol because the bass viol is a very resonant instrument and you just can't play quickly on it. The tone dies down slowly. So if you're playing really, really fast, you just it's just going to sound like a blur. Sort of like if you uh, push the uh, the damper pedal down on the piano all the way and start playing the arpeggios. Mm -hmm. You're just going to get this cloud of sound that where you can't really distinguish what notes are being played. But on the cello, no problem. After this, the variations get aggressive and even exciting for a while with the sharp piano attack and quick phrasing on the cello. And again, this is something that only modern instruments could do in this music. So they're drawing something out of the music that's there that we probably wouldn't hear with this quality on the mm -hmm. period instruments. These aggressive variations end at 9 minutes and 38 seconds. And we're back to something more sensitive. Let's see. I like the piano solo at 11 minutes in the high end. And the muted cello that follows at 11 minutes and 20 seconds. At 12 minutes and 15 seconds, the spacious, muted quality of the performance captivates. This is a really beautiful piece all the way through. Mm. I love the piano sound and phrasing and the variation at the 15 minute and 13 second mark with the cello faintly accompanying. Again, beautiful sound. And listen to the, this is surprising because this can't be in the score. The sul ponte cello. Or um, you're playing either on or behind the bridge of the cello variation at 16 minutes and 45 seconds. I've never heard a bass viol do this, and I'm pretty sure that he's uh, interpreting it this way here. So a real surprise hmm. there. This extended track is really the jewel in the crown of this album, and it's the one you should probably um, sample. Um, although it's a very long <laughs> piece, so... I don't know if you want to do that. You should, though. It was enjoyable all the way through. Yeah. It really kind of made me uh, sink into my chair and get ready for the rest. Both artists bring a full range of expression to the contrasting variations. This is definitely not a performance you'll ever hear amateurs give. It's really the highest level of playing. We're going to talk about um, a recording by uh, a composer by the name of uh, Nimrod Borenstein later. And one of the things he said in his notes was that he doesn't think virtuosity is just like lightning fast playing. But he thinks it also has to do with the tone color you can bring to the instrument and the varieties of that. And um, I think that's true. I absolutely agree with that. I'll repeat it again when we get to that recording. But we're hearing that here. And I wanted to mention it now because um, we're hearing virtuosity of the um, coloring the tones variety on this album. It's really beautiful mm. that way. All right. We're on track five now. La Ravuse. 
which is from uh, Suite d'un goût étranger, from the uh, fourth book. It's a captivating approach to this familiar work on the cello because it approximates the sound of the bass viol, and the, the cello does, with the result that the cello sounds quieter than usual here. Queja achieves a heavy, dark sound in the repeating bass here, with the melody sounding brightly when it comes in on the cello. So you're almost getting the effect of the bass viol and then like a cello accompanying it, really. It's quite a trick. This is quite a virtuosic performance in the tone coloring way. Track six, Fantasy. This is, we're going back to that opening uh, suite in A minor that we heard in tracks one and two. These are three more movements from that, tracks six, seven, and eight. The Fantasy is very brief with a bright winding cello theme over anchoring piano harmony. And it's a quick ternary form. It's less than a minute long, but we have ABA form on this. Uh, track seven, Grand Ballet. This has a staccato quality, making the piece dance-like. And there's some great rapid bowing technique in the variation at a minute and 57 seconds. Again, not achievable at this speed on the period instrument bass viol. I loved the slowing, decrescendoing end of the variation that ends at 2 minutes and 48 seconds too, followed by a rapidly bowed variation. Track 8, a saraband, which is a slow dance. Beautifully sustained cello notes on this track. The melody is traded between the cello and piano. And I love Keira's inviting Baroque style of trilling to the cadence. He does this really well and really in the... Uh, the Baroque style. He, he really understands mm. his style well right, on this um, modern instrument. Track 9, Le Tableau de l'Operation oh, de la Taille. What does that mean? I can't, <laughs> I can't work that <laughs> Don't out. Don't ask me. <laughs> the Taille. Taille is, I think a Taille is my like, waist size or something. I don't know what this means. I got to look it up. The title is announced in French at the beginning. Oh, a taille is like a cut of something. So what I think what this title refers to is the, the spoken words that we hear in this piece. This title is announced in French at the beginning. And as the cellist is playing, you hear someone shouting out in French what he's going to do. It's almost like the it's like teachers saying, okay, now play this way. And then the, the cello will play that way. It kind of sounds like a lesson. There's no need to understand French in order to figure out what the instructions are because you hear them <laughs> right away. Uh, we hear the voice get louder and softer with the technique or the instruction being given. Like he'll say, now play louder, you know, now soft. <laughs> he'll change his voice to uh, indicate the quality that he wants, you know, along with the words. I really didn't expect this. So the spoken words really surprised me. You might want to be ready for that, Trek 9. If you're trying to fall asleep to this album, this will wake you up. <laughs> Maybe start at track 10 if you want to fall asleep to it. Track 10 is a courant from the opening suite. This is another movement from that suite. It's a bright, pleasant dance and very brief. Track 11, we have an anonymous piece that's um, attributed to Marais. It's called Le, Le Regret. Oh, I can't speak French anymore. This is an E minor, and this is a transcription. It starts um, with the solo cello. Well, you know, the whole piece is by solo cello here. There's no piano. And it's played with a melting legato. Then by the 42nd mark, the cello line has a bass note followed by a higher melody. I love that technique a lot, actually. Variations on the material continue throughout this three-plus-minute piece, and there's a really lovely, sensitive final cadence. Track 11, everybody. Track 12, Prelude. Prelude, I need some water. <laughs> the piano returns 
playing a bright, sparkling rolled chord that the once again bright cello melodizes over with ear-catching and soul-calming sensitivity. I want to mention something about the programming um, here. We just heard a piece for um, solo cello in track 11. After that, it's kind of somber, and then we get something a little bit um, brighter here, and then the presence of the piano really just makes this piece leap out at you after hearing three minutes of Mm -hmm. only the cello. That's quite an effect. So this is a uh, program is really organized very well. It's to to keep your ear engaged throughout. Track 13, Saraband Grave. So like a serious Saraband. Highly sensitive piano accompaniment to this beautiful melody. This is a stress removing performance. I know from experience because it removed my stress. <laughs> I like the way the piano will sometimes thicken the texture with fuller chords, changing the transparency of the performance. So track 13, appealing to the ear. Track 14 is marked um, très vivement, gravement. And this is um, a movement from the Sonate à la Marisienne. There's a total change of feel in this with the piano sounding bright and staccato in its mid to upper range. The cello is also in a higher range. Both trade the melody back and forth with rhythmic variations underneath. The cello plays some agile figures, again, unsuited to the bass viol with its heavy tone, but it would have originally been played on that, so it would have been played at a slower sort of tempo. Midway through, the tempo suddenly slows and we get a more drawn-out melody, sensitively contoured and sounded, and this ends on a slowly taken cadence. Track 15, Le Badinage, from Suite d'un goutte étranger. It's another movement from that set, uh, from the fourth... Um, book of um, pieces for the variation for the viol. This is transcribed for the piano solo, so we don't hear a cello here. The piano line is kind of hesitant and teasing at the beginning. It's repeated, and it sounds like this is going to be a set of variations for the solo piano, which it, I think it is here. Tharol man- manages interesting timbres to give this piece its Baroque feel. Notes are short, in keeping with harpsichord note lengths, so they're played pretty staccato. Though he does get some sustain out of the held melodic notes in the mid-range. There's no piano, there's no pedal here. Harpsichord-like banged-out chords are played as well and made to sound well on the piano. You can do this on the the harpsichord and it, it's not very loud, but it just sounds kind of rough. The piano, you could really blow people out of their seats with the volume you can achieve, but he doesn't do that. He manages to somehow keep the sound at an acceptable kind of level while mm. sounding like he's really banging on this, the uh, keys. It's pretty remarkable. He gets like a harpsichord-like volume out of this. At 2 minutes and 26 seconds, there's some impressive fast arpeggios and figuration. Track 16 is a gig. This is from that A minor suite that we started the uh, album with on tracks 1 and 2, and we heard a little bit more of 8 in tracks 6 through 8. The cello is back, and again, this is like a... When we hear that cello after that solo piano work, it just comes in like a... And you, f- you feel like you missed it, and it just feels good to have it back. And plays this dancing melody with a lift in its step. The piano matches that, following along. The set of variations follows, with quick figuration after the dancing section. And the last track is the Allemande from that opening suite. So the suite that opened the work is also one movement from that is closing the entire album. This is a mid-tempo Baroque dance in which the cello leaps from its middle to bass range for the theme, while the piano accompanies and sometimes plays counter melodies. When it ends, it kind of leaves us with a feeling that uh, there's going to be more. 
But no, that's it. <laughs> the album hmm. just ends. I kind of wonder why that would be the last work. Alamans are usually the first or second movement of a Baroque dance music suite. Anyway, as I mentioned, French music relies heavily on timbre for its expression. And we've been hearing Marais' music on the viol since the 1980s in that uh, soundtrack, uh, Tous les matins du monde, was played by Jordi Saval. That's really the, um, that really made his name. And we still hear him today. He conducts and I don't think he plays the bass viol that much anymore, but he, hmm. he's now conducting Baroque ensembles. It's a real trick to put this music across on modern instruments because it requires sort of sensitive and very specific techniques. But I feel like this album is successful in putting this music across. A lot of the lilting rhythms and expressive phrasing are caught sensitively by Keira on the cello, and Tarot is capable of such tonal variation that we often forget we're listening to a piano. I'm not hearing any romantic phrasing or pedaling in this at all. Tarot manages banging sounds, trilling bass drones, and a light touch that doesn't imitate, but catches, nevertheless, a quality of the instruments of the period. The light Baroque quality of these works is captured in these highly sensitive performances. So this is something unique for now, and it's been a long time coming. If you like modern instruments, this may be a new find for you. I enjoyed the album immensely, not least for the creativity brought to the performances by the musicians. They stick to the Baroque style, but they do use the sleeker resources of their modern instruments to get new qualities out of these works. I'd say I think it's about time some modern instruments reclaimed some of this music. I want to keep hearing it on period instruments, of course, but I'm happy that it's no longer exclusively their domain. We now have some variety. The album gave me a lot of pleasure, not least because I had a snifter of cognac while I was listening, so that just (laughs) made it even better. And I'd recommend it to all, including the cognac. I'd recommend this album to everyone but the most puritanical period instrument fans. So if you insist that this music has to be played on period instruments, I'd stay away. Otherwise, you should hear it, and fans of the cello, I would say, should definitely hear it. Yeah, it's a really beautiful recording. Most of the melodies are in the minor keys. Yeah. When I got that theme in uh, track 14 there, it really woke me up because (laughs) it was major and sprightly, and I hadn't heard that in a while. I thought the cello captures most of the mood, you know, if not the unique sound of what a viol would sound like on here but i really enjoyed the cello and i thought he was played with a lot of sensitivity to that period uh, although you know you're getting this modern sound on right. these instruments it's also an interesting variety of rhythmic changes in here so mm-hmm. you got a lot of different types of tempos and feels slow dances a very engaging and satisfying listen and it's a high level of virtuosity as you explained before that is not only speed and technique, but it's great phrasing, sensitivity to tone and interpretation and the phrasing of the melodies. And so it's really musically played and really enjoyable. Yeah, I liked it a lot. Yeah, me too. I want to say, I should say this now, that uh, we really hit the jackpot this week as far as like albums with good sound quality go, because all six of these albums just sound really fantastic. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that one, the one we just heard, and especially this next one, uh, Music for Strings by British composers, played by the Symphonia of London, um, John Wilson conducting. Now, we've uh, talked about quite a few of his albums, and we've got another one coming up soon, too. He's just recorded uh, Rachmaninoff's Second Symphony, which I know you're a big fan of, so we're yeah. going to have to hear that one. This is on Chandos, and if you're lucky enough to have the uh, physical copy, it's an SACD. 
And if you're lucky enough to be me, then you have surround sound in your house and you can play the five channel version, which I did, which really opens up the uh, space, especially in the, well, actually through in all the pieces in this. And I'll explain why in a moment. So the Symphony of London, there's also a string quartet that plays in every one of these pieces, um, except for the one by Frederick Delius. And the string quartet is John Mills on violin, Michael Trainer on the second violin, Andre Vitovich, I hope I said that right, viola, and Richard Harwood on cello. <laughs> one of these names is not like the others. <laughs> and um, one of the reasons I wanted to do this is because the first track is one of my favorite works in the world. How many times have I said this? I think I have more than 10 favorite <laughs> pieces of music. But then again, uh, classical music is a long and deep history. You this know? is my favorite string orchestra piece as well. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I'm, I want to know what you thought of it because I'll get to this. Okay. Anyway, let's talk about this. Fantasy on a Theme by Thomas Tallis by Ralph Vaughan Williams or Rafe Vaughan Williams, they like to say. This was written in 1910, revised in 1919. And the first time I ever heard this piece was in ideal conditions. I was uh, living in Boston, Massachusetts, and an ensemble played this at the Sanders Theater at Harvard University, which is sort of like a, I think it's all wooden inside. and It's modeled on the uh, Shakespeare Globe Mm. Theater. So it kind of has that sort of shape. And there was this sort of like half lit stage and I just heard this really haunting music and it just sent me floating home that that night. So I've just loved this piece ever since because I just associate it with that whole feeling that that first performance gave me. So I'm still kind of hooked on the uh, very famous uh, John Barbaroli conducted (laughs) version of this on um, EMI. It's in stereo, but it was made in the 1960s. So it's very old. Mm. And um, I really want a new one. I thought this was going to be it. So let's listen. This starts, it's one track and it's about 14 minutes long, I think. It starts with a wonderful hush over the descending modal chord pattern. Now, I should mention the uh, ensemble here is divided into two string orchestras, and then there's a string quartet in the center, and it's really layered into threes going from the center out. There's like an inner layer of strings in the string orchestra, and then there's the full string orchestra. And if you have um, surround sound, if you can do the 5.1 SACD recording, it just opens up the sound so much. You get a real sense of the dimensionality of um, the arrangement of the musicians. I really enjoyed that, that quality. Anyway, that hush over the, de- and you hear the descending modal chord pattern. I mean, the, in the first minute of this work, it has everything I love about music and it. it's got modal chords. You know, it's, it gives you like a church kind of feel to it. It's a sort of mystical sounding mm. and it's got strings like these long sustained, wonderful strings. We hear Pizzicati at the the 29th second mark, and that's the beginning of the theme. He, they're just hinting at it here, Vaughn Williams is. And uh, at the minute and 23 second mark, we hear the theme in its entirety in the cellos. It's very loud now. It's straightforwardly stated and is then repeated fortissimo by the entire ensemble, beginning at the 2 minute and 40 second mark. Wow, this will knock your head off. It's kind of really <laughs> loud, very rich sounding, beautiful recording with decorative figures in the back. So far, this is sounding like the best recording I've ever heard of this piece. It sounds fantastic. And the performance is just perfectly judged as well, including the various like layers of the uh, mm-hmm. harmony, because there are certain lines that have to kind of fall under others and just kind of, you just catch like a glimpse of it. He, Williams just 
balances this perfectly. Richness of the strings is great too. The bass registers powerfully. I'm loving this recording. The ensemble has been consistently fantastic on disc. This recording continues that trend. Okay, at the four minute and two second park, we're into the fantasia part. So we've heard the theme. Now we're hearing the fantasia, where elements of the theme get wonderful modal, and I, I said showings. I was kind of thinking of the uh, Julian of Norwich word, where she um, she's kind of explaining things, visions she had of God. So she called them showings. Mm. And I, for me, this is almost like, a religious experience so i wanted to use that word instead of a musical one to make it more technical anyway because i was i feel like this is kind of a mystical work the strings almost sound like a faint organ at times because they're playing completely without vibrato and they're very quiet in the back so far so good but the make or break moment for me is the section when the solo string quartet comes in and that happens at the six minute and 16 second mark and this is where i felt let down Oh, this is so deflating. Let me explain. The performance is fine, first of all. The musicians are great, beautiful tone, but I feel like the viola's solo theme when he comes in is too fast, and for that reason, not deeply felt. The orchestra responds to this also playing rather quickly. They have to because the uh, string quartet, after a pause, is now setting the tempo. Now, when this quartet is playing its contrasting lines by itself, it's going really fast and there's a lot of counterpoint and we don't really have a chance to kind of let our ear pass from line to line as I really enjoy doing. And this could just be me. We don't really get a chance to relish them as I like to do and as I can do on the Barbaroli recording. At the eight minute mark, I'm hearing this is too fast. So there's a great sound, fantastic opening and at this point, I realize this isn't going to be my new favorite recording. It's pretty <laughs> great, though, and it is rewarding. I don't want to put people off it. By 9 minutes and 11 seconds, we're hearing the climax of the piece, and it's just going by too fast. The orchestra is really heavy, and the uh, the climaxes just sound like um, just rushed, like sort of uh, hurdles or something like that, like you're jumping too late or something. I don't feel like this is really impacting as much as it can. There's so many great chords in this, and they just get played through. There's fantastic volume and power on the strings in the 10th minute, but due to the speed, they don't impact as powerfully as they can. The insistent string chords at 11 minutes impact well. Now, at the 11 minute and 45 second mark, the orchestra re-gets control over the um, material again, because there's a change, and Wilson re-establishes the original tempo here. So we're back to the ideal, what I feel is tempo for this work at 11 minutes and 45 seconds. We hear the pizzicato opening of the talus theme again. The tempo has settled down again, and I'm enjoying the playing. Uh, listen in the 12th minute to the counter melody in the cello. It's at a perfect speed, and you can really enjoy its contours. I feel like the middle should have been like this at this speed. They're playing more slowly now because the orchestra is now setting the tempo. Wilson is. Sonically, this is a great recording. I just feel like it's a real shame that the, the middle part was so fast. It would have gone right to the top of my list for this work. Mm. Um, this may rank as a top choice for some listeners just because of the sonic quality of it. There's nothing really objectively wrong with it, but I have like a preference for this work, and that's just the way I feel about it. Everything is in its place, and the quartet plays well, but I just couldn't sink my mind into those wonderful string quartet lines that Vaughn Williams wrote. So recommended with reservations for that piece, I would say. Just because I like it so much. I just... <laughs> I 
The next work on this album, tracks two through four, is uh, new to me. Herbert Howells, who's uh, a lot of his masses I know pretty well. I like him as a composer. Um, this is his Concerto for String Orchestra, composed in 1938. I just thought this work was okay as a work, but it is a pretty brilliant performance. You probably won't hear a better one than this. Uh, the string quartet is involved in this too. It starts with slashing chords and some rushing strings playing thematic material after that. It's quite a shock after the serenity of the Talus Fantasia. We're back on the bustling earth, no longer suspended in the ether. And when the material sinks into the bass register at a minute and 24 seconds, the sound impacts powerfully on this fantastic recording. At 2 minutes and 30 seconds, the piece goes into a mezzo-piano dynamic and flows along, but soon crescendos back to a fortissimo. There's a nice passage, mezzo-forte, at 3 minutes and 20 seconds as well. At 4 minutes and 2 seconds, we hear a solo viola, I think. I can never tell if it's like a low viola or a high cello, you know, when I hear this sound. Uh, this work features the string quartet as well, and here they're, of course, more in line with the tempo, as they must be, because they're not setting it here. Uh, the orchestra is playing with them throughout. All four musicians have good tone, even though it seems they're not an established quartet. They seem to have just been put together for this recording. Hmm. Howell's rough bass chords come out with great dimensionality on the recording. We get shimmering strings at 6 minutes and 45 seconds, the first hush we're hearing in this aggressive movement with the string quartet playing themes and the double basses in the orchestra holding down the harmony. The movement ends with the same slashing chords it began with. The second movement, In Memoriam, E.E. and M.K.H. Quasi lento, tenoramente. Now, Edward Elgar had uh, recently died in 1934, and uh, E.E. is him. And M.K.H. refers to the composer's son, Michael. I don't know his middle name, Michael Howells, right? who died at nine years old of polio. Mm. This is um, you know, a big issue back yeah. in the day, uh, which he contracted during a family holiday. Boy. And anyway, Howells was really heartbroken by this and wrote a lot of works in his honor. So this movement is um, dedicated to him and Elgar both. The movement starts with the muted string quartet accompanied by pizzicato bass lines and light orchestra accompaniment. The mass strings have a veiled effect on them here, in a good sense. It's the effect that, um, that's uh, desired here. And they register beautifully, you know, giving the work a hushed quality. The string quartet features a lot in this movement, playing most of the material with the orchestra, providing harmonic support. The orchestra provides harmonic support, often faintly in the background. At the 4 minutes and 18 second mark, a new section suddenly starts with dramatic but muted chords. The attack isn't as bright as in the first movement. After this section, there's a pause at 5 minutes and 31 seconds. Then we hear familiar material from the opening again, with that muted hush over the orchestra this time. It keeps to a somber, quiet dynamic, sounding rather autumnal, and ends on a beautiful pair of hushed chords. It's a nice movement. The third movement, Allegro Vivo, Vivo Ritmico e Giocoso, is aggressive, energetic, and uh, forte at the beginning. By the minute and 20 second mark, we've settled into a quieter section with the string quartet playing themes while the orchestra loudly comments on them at length. The orchestra takes over and is firmly in control at a minute and 57 seconds. At 2.35, we hear rich sounding chords ending the section and beginning the next, which is dance-like with strongly etched rhythms. I'm really loving the rich bass sound this recording achieves. Busy forte strings propel the next section, which fades at 
501 to a mezzo piano, but the busy string quartet lines won't let the music settle into mellowness. The string orchestra picks up energy and aggression again by the 5 minutes and 45 second mark. Basically, this movement seems to proceed energetically, flagging at moments only to regain strength and proceed again. At 6 minutes and 36 seconds, there's a slowing and a more romantic theme sounds, fading completely at around 7.15. The string quartet comes in with the next section, playing separate themes. A similar pause occurs at 8.51. Then repeated chords come in and crescendo to the aggressive opening material, which brings the movement to its final accentuated chord. Track 5 is by Frederick Delius, another composer I really like. He's very inspired by Debussy. And this piece is called Late Swallows. Written in 1916-1917, it was the slow movement of his string quartet and was arranged in 1962-1963 for string orchestra by Eric Fenby. And that's what we hear here, the string orchestration. The string quartet does not feature in this movement, in this uh, piece. This has a gorgeous string harmony at the beginning, very much in the Delia style. Yeah, it's really unmistakable who this is, uh, who the composer is really, if you know Delius's music. The orchestration is effective. The entire opening is sweeping parallel chords. The pattern repeated, sometimes in different registers, sort of like a faster tempo of uh, Debussy's Nuage, if anybody knows that piece from his Three Nocturnes. There's good warmth from the lower strings, as has been the case throughout the recording. At the 2 minute and 38 second mark, a new section starts, quieter with an ostinato figure in a background single violin. Uh, this gets passed into different registers as the thematic material changes voices. And this is a moody, atmospheric piece that settles gently on the ear. At 5 minutes and 47 seconds, we hear the opening material again. It continues as before, but there's a rich-sounding coda at the end, leading to the decrescendo that brings us to the end of the work. Okay, the last piece on this album is another very famous work, track 6 through 8. Divided into three tracks, interestingly enough, it's usually only one. Edward Elgar, Introduction and Allegro for Strings, Opus 47. Now, this is also famously recorded on that uh, Barbaroli album that had the fantasy mm. on the theme of Thomas Tallis. This particular performance is probably, could rank with the best there are. Okay, it, it, It's just a more modern recording of uh, that piece. And it just sounds fantastic here. So in the introduction, the famous big-boned opening bursts richly out of the speakers. At 25 seconds mark, we hear the string quartet. They're involved in this work as well. Play a second theme, and the bass has the third strand of thematic material as the material curves downward. At a minute and eight seconds, the theme that is the heart of the work is heard in the viola. And these four themes are really what build the entire work. So you're really going to be hearing just one of those four themes for the rest of this uh, piece. The rest of the quartet with orchestral accompaniment pick this theme up, the viola theme. We hear the opening gesture again, leading to the second string quartet theme that ends the introduction. Then we get into the allegro section. It's based on the fourth viola, the viola theme, uh, given wings here and uh, winding into different key areas. At the one minute mark on track seven, quickly bowed figures in the upper strings outline a theme at a minute and 43 seconds, a triplet theme is played against the 4-4 rhythm. This theme sticks out and will re-emerge at 2 minutes and 40 seconds, here leading back to the viola theme, played again here by the viola. This theme ends this section of the work, and then we get to an allegro, tempo one again. The section starts with a fugue, 
whose theme has a skip in its step. Uh, the 42 second mark is a derivation on previous material and uh, appears as counterpoint continues underneath. The contrapuntal patterns come back into the foreground and continue forte, though this is no longer a fugue, but a theme with counterpoint. At 2 minutes and 11 seconds after a fade, we reach a point of stasis, and at 2 minutes and 29 seconds, a quiet theme emerges, the second theme played originally by the string quartet. If I'm remembering this correctly, I actually didn't go back and check it. Uh, the triplet theme is back at the 4 minute and 4 second mark, and excitement builds as the music unflaggingly head to the final chord, followed by that satisfying pizzicato chord that ends the piece. Okay, this is a sonically fantastic album. Strings are warm throughout. The bass registers fully and perfectly. The Symphony of London play with taut, even aggressive rhythm. They manage the gentleness and subtlety required by the Delius work and Vaughan Williams' Fantasia. But I found that the string quartet launched into their solo part in Vaughan Williams' Fantasia at too quick a tempo. They're fantastic on the rest of the works they appear on on the album, especially the Elgar. Uh, this is a fresh recording of that work that could go to the top of people's recommendation lists. The Howells piece is new to me. It's a pretty aggressive work and the most demanding listen on the album due to its constantly moving material. But it's a good piece worth discovering. All in all, the recording is a big success. And if the genre of English music for strings appeals, I'd urge you to hear it. I'm certainly going to listen to it again, despite my, my disappointment with the middle of the Talos Fantasia piece, because the sonics are just fantastic, even in that piece. I really liked it a lot. Yeah, normally I'm not a big fan of only strings, although, as I mentioned, the Vaughn Williams is my favorite piece mm. for that. As you mentioned, sonically, this album is just beautiful. The strings just sound gorgeous uh, throughout, and everything is super clear, well-balanced. And I was listening more bathing in, in the sound yeah. uh, quality, so I didn't notice the tempo, and I don't know the piece uh, that well in different versions, although we have heard it before on, have, uh, the on this podcast, podcast. Have we? I believe we have oh, wow. yeah, last year. Yeah, we probably did. Yeah. I don't remember whether we liked that one or not either. Yeah. Sonically, definitely. This was the best I've heard. Uh, I have to, I'd have to compare it to see if I noticed the tempo thing you mentioned about. And the other pieces are also very interesting, more aggressive rhythmic sections in them. The Delius is kind of ethereal and has unique kind of use of harmony. So it's a bit dreamy like that. And I like the uh, Elgar performance as well. I've heard that piece a few times, yeah. and I thought this was enthusiastic as well. And so overall, you know, even for someone like me who m usually misses brass and woodwinds, I found this to have a lot of exciting sort of moments and just gorgeous sounding strings. Yeah. So I didn't feel like I'm missing the full tonal palette of the orchestra because everything was so rich sounding and the performances are really engaging. So I, I would definitely give this a listen. Yeah, I think they, that in that uh, Talos Fantasia that they were going more for excitement, but there's so much mm. gorgeous contrapuntal detail that just gets run over. I mean, it's audible, but you don't get a chance to really you know, enjoy it, mm. the, the shaping of it and uh, the note against noteness of it. It's just, it just goes by too fast. Right. That's just the way I felt about that. If you don't know what I'm talking about, listen to the Barbaroli recording. He does it perfectly, I think, but it's an older recording. Yeah. Now that I haven't heard, so maybe I need to give that a listen to yeah. have something to compare it to. I heard Goodwin's my younger days too, that I don't have anymore that aren't really so famous, mm. but anyway, <laughs> let's move on. I always try to get a contemporary composer on if I can, because I feel like uh, classical music is a uh, continuing thing. People like to talk about um, 
how uh, classical music is, oh, it's uh, dead white men. It's No, it's not. Not on this podcast, it's not. Well, a lot of them are. <laughs> but uh, we, we always have some living person. Well, not always, but often have some, a, a living composer on this uh, podcast. And this week's is an Israeli composer by the name of Nimrod Borenstein. There's a name for you. I don't have any mm. friends named Nimrod. No. Uh, in Nimrod. fact, in uh, Nimrod, by the way, he's a, he's a warrior in the Old Testament. So it's a right. really powerful, strong name. But it's kind of become kind of a funny word in American English. When we were kids, we used to like insult <laughs> insult people by calling them a Nimrod, but because it's a funny sounding name, but the meaning is very noble. Anyway, let's forget that and just go for the noble <laughs> nobility here. Nimrod Bornstein, Piano Concerto, Shirim, and Light and Darkness. So three new works to me. The uh, main artist on this album is Klelia Iruzun. I hope I said her name right on the piano and she's accompanied by in the piano concerto is the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra uh, conducted by uh, Nimrod Bornstein himself and there's a chamber work in which she's accompanied by or placed together with I Musicanti this is on the Som Records label S-O-M-M which I think is a British label Bornstein in his notes calls this album a celebration of the piano an instrument he loves, and that, an instrument that uh, me and Russ both love too, and I'm sure Absolutely. many of our listeners do too. The program has a concerto, a chamber work with piano, and a solo piano work. Uh, Bornstein says he loves to layer many melodies at the same time in his music. Yeah, I think we can attest to that after hearing the album, that that is an <laughs> honest statement. And the piano is one of the few instruments with the ability to do that on its own, and it's the reason I wanted to play the piano, because I always wanted to be the whole band. I couldn't choose <laughs> an instrument. Anyway, also the piano has like a decaying sound like bells, and I love bells. So I guess there you go. The pianist featured on the album uh, has performed many of Borenstein's works over the years, so she's sort of associated with him. So the concerto for piano and orchestra, this is the major work on this album, I would say. It was written for Clelia Uruzun in 2021 and premiered in Brazil at the Sala Sao Paulo on 16 July 2022. So this is hot off the presses. You're hearing a new work here. Bornstein sees virtuosity, as I said earlier, not as only the capacity to play quickly and precisely, but even more essentially as the mastery of colors and nuances and the individuality of the voice. And to be honest, that's what I love most about not just classical music, but even jazz as well. Like, uh, you know, pianists who can get really nice um, voicings. Mm -hmm. uh, Bill Evans, of course, was a real master of this in uh, in jazz. And there, there are many in, in classical music who do this too. It's what I enjoy most about classical music is the nuances and colors of the instruments. Yeah, so I absolutely agree with Bornstein here. Like Beethoven, Bornstein sees the concerto as a heroic form. Okay, I'll give him that. I don't really hear that quality like heroism here but let's see hmm. what we what we do here track one or movement one is marked moderato and a piano solo starts the movement it sets the grandiose tone we'll hear throughout this is like big boned there's an octave theme in the first minute that Borenstein calls devilish so these booming bass chords are followed by bell-like chords in the higher register Reminiscent of the beginning of uh, Rachmaninoff's uh, second piano concerto, if anybody knows that, with the loud bass note and then the mm. bell-like chords rising to the main theme. Um, the sound quality is good, 
to my ear the piano sounds a bit recessed on the recording or rather it's not the pianist it's or the or the recording there's just too much room ambience um but it doesn't really detract from the the performance it's just that the performance doesn't really the sound doesn't impact into the room it, like i guess part of the problem for me was i was listening to this after the the string uh, <laughs> album that we just heard which has just really great dynamics so i think this was a little bit of a, mm. a letdown after that i'm probably being unfair here let's see fortes on the piano are heard but not felt that's what i'm trying to say okay as forcefully as they could be it actually sounds better and fuller and quieter and less dense passages it's perfectly audible though there's no problem with the recording or indeed with the playing there's a lot of quick contrast in the first two minutes with moods changing quickly Borenstein is traditional in his approach using melodic themes that can easily be remembered. The piano is pretty busy in this movement, constantly playing. So this is a very impressive performance, I want to say. There are some sudden, surprising rhythmic changes in the piano. Listen, for example, at 2 minutes and 40 seconds, where the piano suddenly presses on the gas for a quicker pattern. At 3 minutes and 15 seconds, we're hearing the opening bell-like material again. There's a pretty cool section at the four-minute mark with booming orchestral chords, encouraging the piano to climb into a higher register. There's great wind writing at four minutes and 30 seconds. And there's very pretty music box-like playing at around the four-minute and 50-second mark on the piano. This is a slower section, providing contrast with the opening aggression. At five minutes and 49 seconds, Forte material comes back with rolling figures in the piano. This quickly quietens into a sparse, quiet section, appealingly melodic. When more aggressive material comes back, there are quick rhythmic and timbre changes, always surprising and keeping the ears glued to the work. Yeah, at the beginning, we were remarking that um, this is music for the internet age because there's a lot of quick changing <laughs> material. That is absolutely the case with this movement. There's, you know, blink and you'll miss it sometimes. Um, there's one more quiet section at 8 minutes and 13 seconds where the piano is playing in two different rhythmic patterns, one in the right hand and one in the left. The piano writing throughout the movement is interesting and it's traditional harmony. The movement ends quietly on the solo piano as though it has wound down, sort of like a wind-up toy that's wound up whose spring has been uh, loosened. Anyway, the second movement is the adagio, the slow movement. So this is almost like in the uh, traditional Vivaldi style, fast, slow, fast, or really a traditional concerto style. The middle movement is contemplative and tranquil, and the notes say, tainted with melancholy. Pizzicato bass and cellos play the opening mel melancholy theme. There's a lot of room ambience on this recording, as I mentioned. Uh, the strings get a lot of room to resound, but it may be slightly too much. I should mention, we're hearing one piece for orchestra, one piece for chamber uh, ensemble, and one for the solo piano. So these recordings were made at three different times. And the... Um, the sound is going to change with each piece. Hmm. The piano comes in with a music box-like lightness to its light, but rhythmically complex theme and accompaniment. This continues on at 2 minutes and 50 seconds, where there's a sudden change. The orchestra comes in, and a forte is reached. Then the piano resumes its music box quality. Contrasting material is heard at 4 minutes and 10 seconds, as those uh, nasal brass come in again. In fact, I wasn't even sure if they were brass, because... <laughs> I didn't know how the sound was really being made. <laughs> a more romantic string theme. It's really kind of from the, like, sounds like it's coming out of the nose or something. 
A more romantic string theme takes the lead at around uh, 4 minutes and 40 seconds. It suddenly disappears with a timpani hit, and we're with the music box piano again. At 6 minutes and 18 seconds, there's a timpani-led crescendo, which suddenly disappears to music box playing with light string pizzicatos accompanying. The music box theme winds down to its final chord to end the mu- movement satisfyingly. And I want to say, I'm, I'm mentioning this music box quality to the piano. This takes some some great strength to get this timbre out of the piano. Uh, really good uh, virtuosity, even though it doesn't sound like she's, she's not playing fast here. But this is some uh, a good ear and a good touch at work. Mm-hmm. Touch is really very much a part of virtuosity. The third movement, Allegro. Um, we hear some themes in the first movement from this that feel totally different due to the faster pace, according to Borenstein. There's a rushing, whirling string pattern at the opening. It gives way to the piano playing the same pattern, moving to different chords. There's a harshness to the orchestral chords here. Brass are very nasal sounding again. This seems to be sort of a, a theme in this work, that uh, sound. I like the sudden rhythmic changes just past the one minute mark. The music settles into a dancing groove for the material heard at the one minute and 30 second mark, then just as quickly speeds up into athletic material for the piano. All of these sudden changes make for enjoyable listening, but a different, difficult podcast description. And we're going to have more (laughs) difficult podcast description coming up in the jazz section. Okay, you'll really have to hear this for yourself, and I'd encourage you to. Uh, The pizzicato section at 2 minutes and 45 seconds is ear-catching. A quieter, sparsely played section follows in the third minute. And this continues with metamorphosis for a few minutes afterwards, sometimes speeding up momentarily, then falling back to a slower tempo. Contrasts are constant throughout the entire work, but really especially in this third and final movement of the piano concerto. Crescendos bring us back to quicker, more athletic playing in the seventh minute, and by the eighth minute, the pianist is really playing some excitingly fast material. Accentuated chords build up the excitement in the orchestra. The piece ends on a sudden ending chord. This is an interesting work, constantly engaging with a lot of quick changes that require a lot of ideas from the composer. I'd say it's ideal for the quickly changing attention spans of our internet-influenced times, as I've mentioned. I think it can gain a wide audience if it's heard by enough people and played by enough pianists. Very appealing. The fourth track is a one-movement chamber work called Light and Darkness, Opus 80. And this features, of course, Clelia Iruzun on the piano with i musicanti, who are Tamas Andras on the violin, Robert Smithson on viola, Ursula Smith on cello, and Leon Bosch on the double bass. Now, that double bass is going to really change the uh, the quality of that we expect from sort of small string ensembles. Um, we mm-hmm. can think of uh, Schubert's um, Trout uh, Quintet, where there's a double bass included. This, by the way, was my favorite work on this album. I really enjoyed this um, mm. chamber work. The title comes from one of the last phrases of Stefan Zweig's book, The World of Yesterday. Only the person who has experienced light and darkness, war and peace, rise and fall, only that person has truly experienced life. I feel like I don't really need to experience life. I just want the light. (laughs) (laughs) I've had enough. Anyway, be that as it may, let's let's get on with, with this. Light and darkness. It starts appealingly with a two-note piano theme sequenced throughout the keyboard. 
The double bass makes for a satisfyingly deep pizzicato in anchoring the harmony and sounds great on the recording, by the way. This is a well-recorded uh, track. The strings build on the piano's line. The piano reappears with that opening pattern. Then the strings take over for a while. The recording on the strings on this piece is especially vivid. The pizzicato high strings sounding like they're in the room. Listen in the second minute. The recording here is excellent, perhaps due to a closer mic placement than in the orchestral piece. Once again, there are a lot of quick changes, hard to document in a spoken way, uh, lots of contrasting sections. We do seem to return often to the opening tempo and rhythm, though not to the same material, which changes each time. The piece generally maintains its melancholy atmosphere, and the changes of texture in the strings and piano are appealing and show a composer with real resourcefulness in combining timbres. I'm enjoying the bass and pizzicati high strings in the eighth minute. The bass has a rich, full sound on the recording, and the plinking sounds on the piano and pizzicati in the eighth minute remind me of African Mabira music, or like the kalimba, the thumb piano. Hmm. Um, Bornstein says the piece ends in light. I'm hearing a satisfying ending, certainly, and there's a bit of serenity to the piano's final final notes. I'll, I'll give that much. This is an instantly appealing piece, and if you're going to sample one work on this album, I would say it should be this one, although the three works are all very different from each other. Tracks 5 through 22 <laughs> are, are a set of uh, piano works. They're all miniatures. It's called Shirim, Opus 94, and Kleli Iruzun is the solo pianist, composed in 2021. The title can be translated both as poems or as songs. And Borenstein thinks of these as his own songs without words. Hence, the title of number three includes Mendelssohn in it. The titles are in French simply because they came to Borenstein that way. <laughs> so they're going to make <laughs> me work again. Here's, that's what, what's going to happen here. The first one, track five, is uh, Lune et Nuage, uh, the moon in the clouds. Pretty harmonies, chiming tones, mostly at the higher end of the keyboard. The notes are disconnected and not melodic and sound like water drops. It's pretty and enchanting, and there's a cheeky final bass note. And in fact, uh, a lot of these um, pieces are going to have cheeky endings. So listen for those. And uh, Iruzun captures these qualities, the water drop quality and the cheeky endings, really well. The endings come across with humor. Good timing by the pianist. Two, en horizon perdu. Oh, it's a lost hedgehog. Okay. It's more rhythmic. I hope I did that translation right. I hope I'm not confusing that with something else. Uh, more rhythmic with an opening ostinato phrase. Uh, the rhythm and textures change quickly as the piano concerto. Easy to follow here since the work is only a minute and 26 seconds. The third uh, one is Souvenir de Mendelssohn. And the rhythm of this is what makes one think of in Mendelssohn, if you heard his um, Barcarolles especially. There was a vogue for interweaving slow lines. Schumann had a lot of these too. So if you've played any Schumann or Mendelssohn works, you're probably familiar with this sound. These works are all very different from each other. This really doesn't sound tonally like a set. Now, when I say tonally, I don't mean harmonically. I mean the, the tone that the each piece sets. Um, they sound very different from each other. The short length of the pieces is what keeps them together, really. It's more like a collection of works. Track four. Jeu dans le jardin, games in the garden, or playing in the garden. Quick moving bass line with short phrases peeking around the bass notes of the right hand, cleverly written, cheeky final chord. 
Five, un moment de serenité, a moment of serenity. This is gentle and lullaby-like. The high piano notes twinkle and hang like stars. Again, this is beautifully played by uh, Iruzun. Bodenstein's signature sudden texture changes are present here too. This heads into the very high end of the piano for the end, which has a cheeky final note. Track six, Le Flac d'eau, Puddles of Water. Short, it starts rather squarely, but Sudan suddenly begins in the texture, changing to speed up in figuration until it becomes cascading lines. Track seven, this is a pretty intriguing title, Goutte de Temps, Drops of Time. The word goutte is usually used for water drops. Hmm. And it has a water droplet sound at the beginning, very spacious. Uh, the rhythm has that uh, polyrhythmic sound of water droplets falling at different times. Mm-hmm. They're not in any like specific together sort of rhythm. The piece reaches a quasi-dramatic climax at its center, then quietens again with the droplet figures. Track 8 is called Pas Sérieux, which means not serious. Uh, this is brief and has a light staccato, leaping about feel to it. It's teasing almost. Notes hock it from the left to right hand and ends suddenly and resolves on a cheeky bass note. So many of these pieces have these like surprise bass notes at the end that just kind of make you smile, I guess. Track 9, Esquisse. No, not sorry, not track 9. This is uh, Movement 9. I've lost track of the uh, track number by now. <laughs> what is this one? This is 13, track 13. Esquisse Melancolique. Uh, juxtaposed rhythms between the hands with both voices sounding clearly and well-connected. And again, impressive playing. The piece is slow and atmospheric and rather quiet. Track 10, Golem. A Golem was a monster created by um, Jewish rabbis who were supposed to come, who came to life and protected them when they wrote the uh, word of God on its forehead. But suddenly they would go, sometimes they would go and be destructive on their own. There are actually early horror movies about golems. Um, this is loud, with a sense of fright at the beginning. Then the music quiets suddenly, and we hear staccato figures in both left and right hands. It's a brief piece, but changes its overall ambience several times. Movement 11, Une Petite Histoire, A Little Story, uh, has a big fanfare at the beginning, which has like a once-upon-a-time quality to it. The regal chords continue until they start falling at 22 seconds. Then we hear a light skipping figure over a similarly melodic bass. The middle of the piece gets louder. Then we go back to the quieter beginning for the end. Twelfth movement, or twelfth piece, Promenade sous la lune. This is uh, walking under the moon. Quick changes in this one. It's actually hard to document them all. This promenade feels like a wandering one with all the different uh, changes. The tempo remains the same, but speeds change with fluctuating note values. It's pretty interesting. The 13th piece, La Forêt, The Forest. A rushing figure opens the piece, then the rhythm slows to a trudging figure, with a lot of playing in its low end. It's a pretty busy piece in all voices, compact with lots packed in. The 14th piece, Une Histoire d'Amour, A Love Story, uh, starts with staccato lines in both hands, then moves to legato, then back to staccato, a lot of Bornstein juxtapositions. The 15th piece, Autom, uh, busy lines change to slow, chimey lines by the end, and the ending is particularly pretty in this piece. The 16th one is called La Nuit, has a ticking bass with low open fifth chords. The pattern slowly speeds up and rises to a higher register, 
and the piece ends inconclusively with a ringing final high note. The 17th piece is Barcarolle, which is sort of like a Venetian boat song, and has the rocking 6-8 rhythm of a Barcarolle. Um, the melody follows that rhythm as well. Then at 26 seconds, there's a sudden change to staccato that seems unrelated. We're quickly back to the Barcarolle rhythm, and it ends with a repeating bass note and a final anchoring low bass note. The last piece, this is track 22, piece 18, Dernière Minute dans le Jardin Féerique. The Jardin Féerique title comes from Ravel, really, because um, Ravel wrote a famous, in his Mamel Loire, he has a section called Le Jardin Féerique, which is absolutely magical. I recommend you hear it, both for piano and for, um, piano for hands and for orchestra. But anyway, um, Bornstein's piece, this means um, last minutes in the fairy garden. There's a flourish, and we hear a type of elf dance tune in the very high end of the piano. This kind of put me in mind of like Grieg's kind of woodland kind of creature dancing thing. The mm. rhythm changes toward the end and gets more active, and then we hear a descent to a final banged-out chord. And I have to say, in conclusion, the pianist Clelia Iruzun shines throughout this album, particularly in the solo piano works Shirim, which we just finished hearing. It might be a good idea to revisit the piano concerto after hearing her play these works, where you can hear her entire sound clearly. The piano concerto is certainly worth discovering. Bornstein uses traditional harmony as a composer, so his works are easy on the ear, but he keeps the ear occupied with his, and the mind really occupied, with his surprising sudden changes of tone, harmony, and overall feel. You can hear this in the short Shirin piano works as well as the large piano concerto. My favorite work was the chamber work, Light and Darkness. I like the arrangement of the quartet's music, particularly the inclusion of a double bass, which gave the piece more punch than a cello would. It fell well on the ear. This is all music worth giving a listen to. The playing is great, especially by the pianist, and I highly recommend you hear it and discover a new composer. Yeah, you know, when you told me what you were going to have on the program this week, and you said, and a contemporary piano work, I was thinking, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like everybody else always does whenever I put someone. When am I going to be able to handle this? So I was thinking. And then I have to say, against my expectations, <laughs> what I found was a completely accessible contemporary composer with nothing to fear here at all. Yeah, it's really nice. The music makes sense on a first listen with a lot of beauty. And I found personally I could identify really well with his harmonic language. It's traditional, but there are a lot of choices. I was reminded in a lot of the way that Rachmaninoff uses harmony, although he doesn't compose with these kind of long flowing lines. But every time I got to some resolution or a little harmonic diversion, I thought in my mind, oh, I see why he did that. And so I was very satisfied you know, listening to that. Uh, the concerto performance has that music box and sometimes chimey quality to it that's very interesting yeah. in the piano articulation and phrasing. And I liked that. But I also really liked his use of orchestration, uh, the brass, and also the double reeds are used really well for a lot of uh, timbral variety in the orchestral parts. And I also enjoyed the light and darkness. I found it kind of contemplative and also engaging. It took me through a lot of different moods. The uh, solo piano work was interesting, the, these little episodes, and you know, I was held through it. But I guess I preferred the concerto 
Um, yeah, it's more meaty, really. The other ones, yeah. But I was pleasantly surprised. I'm really up for hearing some more of his music. Yeah, so am I. So I'm going to keep an eye out for any uh, future recordings in coming years. We'll have to see. Yeah. All right, moving on to the jazz section. As promised, a European jazz tour. And not only that, a really cheerful European jazz tour. These were yeah. all really upbeat, uplifting, oh, sunny yeah. albums. I, I had a tap in my toe all week long. Yeah, and uh, well, last week we did uh, all trombone recordings, and thanks to uh, Nick Finzer for uh, giving us a thanks for his album that came out on yeah, thank 14th. You, yeah. you really so haven't checked that out yet, go uh, have a listen to that. Uh, I think you'll like that one from last week. It's available. Now, it wasn't available when the episode aired, mm. but it uh, came out on the 14th. Well, as I said today, European jazz here, and we're going to build it up. We're going to go trio quartet and then double up to an octet and uh, get your passports ready to uh, go to various countries. My passport has a lot of stamps on it after listening to this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to start out in Hungary uh, with a piano trio. Now, we've done a few uh, recordings by Hungarian pianists that we really enjoyed. Uh, the young Peter Garifus uh, with his debut recording, which was really good. And we did another great one. I think it's called Trick uh, Gabor Horvath. It was on Hunya Records, and we really enjoyed that one. And so I'm happy to say we've got a, another really outstanding and enjoyable Hungarian pianist to listen to this time. And this is Matyas Barta with his new release, with his trio. It's called From This Moment On, and it's on Double Moon Records, and it came out March 24th. Now, Barta's performed internationally with a lot of famous artists, Sheila Jordan, Kevin Mahogany, uh, Jim Rotundi, one of my favorite trumpet players, and the great Don Menza, sax player, who I had a chance to meet when I was a young fellow. And Barta started playing the piano at age eight in his home country of Hungary, and he completed his studies at the University of Music and Performing Arts in Graz, Austria. He also spent some time in New York City playing piano with jazz musicians such as David Wong and Pat O'Leary, among others. And then as a young talent, he was twice selected to the Generations in Fraunfeld, Switzerland, where he had a chance to study and play with David Hazeltine, Louis Hayes, Peter Washington, Mark Turner, and Alex Sipiagin, some of our favorite musicians right there. Yeah. Since 2015, he's been on the jazz scene in Vienna, and he's got a previous recording here, Self Reflection, that's in 2021. And so this is second release. So Barta's on piano. He's got an American bassist, Danny Zeman, and an Austrian drummer, Christian Zalfenher. So we're going to start out with a program here. We've got a couple of originals from Barta himself, also from Zeman, and some unique takes on standards as well. So it's a nice variety we find in this program. We're going to start out with Barta's Bumpily, and uh, this is dedicated to his partner, Anna. Barta starts it solo uh, with a rubato piano intro that has a pushing ahead type of feel to it. When he sets the tempo for the melody to come in, Zeman and Zalfiner join in with a floating 6-8 rhythm. Uh, nice brushwork on the drums there. The melody is a 32-bar AABA form with the rising lines and chords in the A section and some more contrasting and tension-building chords in the B section. Then it turns into a real bass feature for Zeman here uh, to solo for multiple choruses. He has a strong attack and really ringing tone in his melodic lines. A cool high range and double stops in there too. Barta follows and you're impressed with his flowing lines, 
rhythmic ringing chord figures and overall soft and smooth touch. You can hear that throughout this recording. When he brings back the melody, uh, Zeman has some cool high ringing bass underneath this time and nice unified movement of bass and piano at the end to some final piano chimes. Track two is another Barta original, Dr. Rival, and this is dedicated to jazz pianist Klaus Rival. There's an eight bar intro started out with repeating piano bass figure joined midway by bass and drums. The melody has cool bluesy rollicking piano figures. It's an AABA form. Listen for the cool rhythmic change up in the seventh and eighth measures of the A section. The B section goes through some modulations with a simpler rhythmic line and some Latiny drum accents. And the final A section has an extra measure in it with some descending piano chords. Bartha picks up out of that into a solo of bluesy and snappy rhythmic lines. He gets some adventurous rhythmic ideas over his oftener steady groove. They finish it up with one more A section and some fun with repeats of the descending line into a really surprising piano chord that starts bright and rolls into a more ominous minor finish. Great tune. Track three, from this moment on, of course, Cole Porter and Bartha apparently really likes Cole Porter and uh, yeah, all of his tunes are great. Uh, they started with a medium tempo intro of alternating bouncing piano figures and syncopated bass and piano left hand figures. A line of chords and drum hits push it into a racing swing tempo for the melody. They break it up with some revisits of the intro rhythm, which is really cool. Nice bass work from Zayman switching between furious walking and snapping to the accented rhythmic lines. And Bartha comes out charged up from the solo break with the solo of speedy lines. It keeps his smooth touch and melodic direction even at this high speed. And they take a time around for trading eights with Zalfner and he's charged up to let loose on the drums here. Then they take it around the tune again, give it an outro to match the intro for a finish. It's a nice arrangement and great energy in the solos here. Yeah, one of the things that drew me to this track is at the beginning, like the uh, the, the kind of hi-hat is playing like that rhythm that used to hear in like cartoons when we were kids, when like when Huckleberry Hound was kind of walking, he was walking towards the door that you didn't know it was on the other side. He was kind of building suspense. I was just kind of happy to hear that again. You don't really hear it too often these days, but nice little blast from the past for me. I'm going to switch over to Zeman original, The Man from the Capital. This one starts out with Barta solo on eight measure of the a section from the melody. The bass and drums join in with Zalfner on brushes, giving a swift 6-8 tempo for a repeat. I'm not really sure the form of this one. There's a new section that seems to be 14 measures long, and then a longer final section. Uh, anyway, as they go along, it stays in tempo, but drops out uh, for sections, uh, the rhythm just letting the piano and bass float on nicely uh, before joining in on the brushes with the drums again. Barta continues on into an improvised solo that has good bouncy feel and lots of triplet figures and chiming chords. And Zeman gets left on his own for a bass solo that really rings out in free time. Lots of double-stopped harmonic ideas and some neat slides in there too. And they finish it up with a run through the melody sections again. Get an old-time standard from Jerome Kern, I'm Old Fashioned. A fun intro with a single note bass rhythm 
and light drum rhythms that make the bass for Alberto to come in with a soft touch on the melody. They had a nice hold and pause, building up anticipation on the way. And Barta has some lovely soft chiming chords over the bass and drum intro feel before they shift it up into a chugging swing for some improvised piano and a cool chord transition back to the original rhythm for the final section of the melody into some mysterious and then dreamy chimes to take it out. It's a clever and classy arrangement of a familiar tune. All right, Mike, got your standard cap on. Okay, you're going to test me here. I'm, I didn't hear what this is because I would have written it down. Right. Anyway, go ahead. Because it's called the Ballad Medley. Yeah, and I heard that there were a lot well, of different ballads. <laughs> we've got uh, two composers' names that may be familiar, Jerry Livingston and Willard Robinson. Well, Here's where the standard listening will come in handy. Uh, well, the first tune is It's the Talk of the Town. Yeah, I wouldn't have known that one. Okay. All right. So mm. I recognize this one right away. It's a gentle but rhythmic treatment with a great touch and ornamentation from Barta. After a hold and pause, Zeman gets the second half of the medley started on his own with another free-floating bass solo. Uh, it took me a while to get... Uh, this tune, but then it came to me because the bass is, you know, kind of uh, doing his own thing, although he is melodic. It's old folks. Old folks. Okay. Yeah. Great ringing high bass notes of melody and a bass line underneath those, all from just a single bass uh, with wonderful slides in there, too. And Barta and Zoffner join in with nice soft tom work on the drums and cymbals uh, with piano chimes. And then at the end, we get a little reprise of Talk of the Town uh, to finish it up with a final unexpected modulation at the end. Listen for that. Yeah, I didn't know either of those standards, though. That's, oh, okay. um, there you go. You keep keep listening to the I don't think they've <laughs> covered those two yet. You know, they're, okay. they're 100 episodes in. They do a lot of the really popular ones, and they go through all the different like hmm. versions of them. It's really fun. Now we're going to get another Cole Porter tune. Every time we say goodbye. Yeah, I know this one. Okay. Yeah, but I haven't heard it quite like this. Yeah. <laughs> a solo rubato piano intro tricks you into thinking you're going to get another ballad, but not at all. Barta switches up with a bouncy rhythmic 5-4 pattern joined by the bass and drums. That gives the famous melody a really unique feel. Barta has a light and energetic solo peppered with little triplet figures and darting lines. Nice groove and fills from Zalfner underneath. And Zayman gets a bass solo next with a great bounce and some bluesy bends. They do some trading fours with Zalfner for some more tasty drumming, focusing on the toms before taking it around the melody again and finish up with some grooving and final rhythmic piano ideas on a vamp that fades out. Track 8's another Zayman original Green's Groove. This is inspired by the American jazz pianist Benny Green. Hmm. So the first 16 measures is kind of a halting gospely piano idea with bass and drums adding accents to the piano chords. Then it shifts into a shuffle kind of feel for eight bars, then back to eight more measures of the opening feel. Barta's off on a bluesy solo after that. Great swinging feel and nicely connected flowing melody lines there and punctuated chords mixing it up. Zeman follows with a bluesy and bouncy bass solo, some really cool rhythmic licks in there as well. And Barta gets more rollicking for some trading with Zalfiner, and they wrap it up with another run through the melody sections with some final phrase repeats. And that's it. It's a great piano trio recording. Barta's a very classy pianist, 
with a really sensitive touch. He can dig in and get rollicking when he wants, but he really impresses with his smoothness and connected solo melody ideas and attention to dynamics. There's nice originals here from Barta and Zeman, cool twists on some favorite standards, and making them fresh and interesting. And Zeman's, these free-flowing bass solos from him are really captivating with his great ringing tone. Good grooves that he puts together with Zalfiner, and that sense of interplay and communication comes together that you hope for in a piano trio. Uh, highly recommended to all piano jazz fans. Yeah, I have to say, um, we you'd mentioned all these um, Hungarian pianists that we uh, have heard on, or Hungarian jazz artists that we've heard on this mm. um, podcast, and uh, they've all been good, including this one. So I'm kind of thinking that uh, maybe uh, moving to Hungary might be in the cards. You know, if there's such a good jazz <laughs> scene there, I, might, I could listen to this. Mm. All the time. This is a very sunny and pleasant album, and the playing by the trio, the piano, everybody throughout is um, really appealing. It's a comfortable listen. Mm -hmm. It's all about the tune and soloing on the tunes theme, and often at length too, and satisfyingly so. A lot of space is left for the soloist to solo in, and they take that opportunity. The arrangements and approach are pretty traditional. They're they're kind of old school. I thought there were some nice takes, as you mentioned, on um, mm. some familiar material and i thought the solos were the highlights of the album really um there are a lot of appealing ideas in the solos especially i thought yeah no complaints i might have to pick this up yeah i'm yeah. looking forward to uh, album number three so <laughs> oh god yeah yeah yeah, yeah. can hardly wait I, I might have to go back to album number one album number yeah, one now. i haven't heard it too i just sampled it a bit yeah it's on teaser we can yeah, probably check like it out there okay really nice hmm. all right get the passport back out for a flight over to the UK with Fraser Smith's quartet, tenor saxophonist, and his new release, Tip Top, on Ubuntu label. What a, what a British title that is, Tip Top. Yeah. <laughs> what is all American in sound here. This was released on April 7th, and Smith is Birmingham-born, Welsh-raised, and now London-based. And this is his debut recording. Well, he's heavily influenced by bebop and hard bop and tenor bebop players uh, that were inspired by Charlie Parker, Dexter Gordon, Ike Quebec, uh, Stanley Turrentine, among names that are listed there. And well, you know, when I look at my own jazz collection, I have stuff from all eras and, you know, try to keep filling it up with new recordings. But there's this hump from 1956 to 1964, that's those eight years yeah. of uh, jazz blooming in a lot of different styles. So you've got your hard bop, your cool jazz, you get into, you know, modal jazz and things. And so there's so many great tenor players around that time. I've got all of the recordings by Ike Quebec. You have all of Sonny Rollins's uh, great output there. And uh, Joe Henderson and uh, the great uh, player I like to, Tina Brooks who unfortunately wasn't even recognized when he made those recordings. And for a lot of people, <laughs> those eight years are kind of the only jazz they ever need. And <laughs> they keep going back to that. But uh, certainly Smith has absorbed this sax tradition, and it all comes out in this uh, great recording here. And we're going to have most of his originals that could have been released any time <laughs> during those periods. Wow. It would have fit right in. That's high praise. We'll have, wow. Yeah, one other kind of uh, older tune cover that we'll have here as well. So Smith's on tenor sax with uh, 
compositions all original here except for one we've got rob Barron again on piano who we just heard a few weeks ago with five-way split uh, another great uk combo with uh, quentin collins on trumpet uh, one of my favorite players that i've heard come out of the uk simon reed on bass and steve brown on drums so we'll start out with a smith composition might not well this one gets started with an eight bar tension building intro over a one note syncopated bass idea and a twisty sax riff then we're off into a minor bluesy tune with an art blakey type of bounce to the beat smith handles the bluesy melody with a nice husky tone it's an aaba 32 measure form the b section has a bright twist with some answering lines from baron on the piano and nice accented hits at the end smith's up first for a solo nice phrasing with space between his lines and he builds it up gradually getting to some bluesy bends and some double time lines he can get a nasty edge on his tone when he wants perfect for a bluesy tune like this and baron follows him with a piano solo Nice relaxed bluesy bounce and some fun rhythmic figures into more percussive chords and some zippy lines in there as well. Reed gets a bass solo too and he keeps it in the meaty toned registers with good melodic direction. It's another run through the melody with some final phrase repeats to finish it out. Track two is Iroquois, a surprising American sounding <laughs> title, but uh, you can think of this maybe as uh, inspired by Charlie Parker's Cherokee which was uh, basis for his own tune, uh, Coco. And so you'll probably recognize the chord progression if you're a jazz fan. But initially, uh, Cherokee was written by a British composer. Uh, anyway, uh, band leader Ray Noble. Uh, so it's an international tune right from the start. It's a double-time bebop thing here uh, with Smith starting it out for a solo run on the A sections of the melody over Brown's tight snare and drum accents. Uh, over to the trio for the B section with Baron taking the bop lead on the piano and then back to Smith to finish it up uh, before everyone's back in for Smith to start his solo. Impressive melodic double time phrases, but he mixes things up with a lot of rhythmic variety and fun figures in his lines too. Reed has a furious bass walk going all the time underneath and Baron's up next for a piano solo with quickly turning phrases changing directions really quickly there and some fun rhythmic mix-ups inside there too uh, nice subtle drumming and accents from brown below who gets his own solo next keeping that tight snare going uh, while mixing it up around the kit and the others return on the b section with a speedy unison melody line in the saxon piano that carries through to the end uh, exciting tune we get the title track for number three tip top the trio gets it started with a four measure intro a snappy bass figure and rim click make it feel good it's a happy sounding melody for smith to blow out uh, this one really evokes sonny rollins to me it's another aaba form listen to the cool rising bass and piano line in the fourth measure that pushes it ahead and then changes up to a bass walk and easy swing feel the b section has some nice harmonic twists in it too and baron solos first with a really nice relaxed feel and some fun rhythmic chords smith follows with a solo with a mix of relaxed lines and some sassy smears and reed gets a bass solo too very melodic in his bass lines smith picks it up with the melody from the b section into a final a section of the melody with satisfying little coda ending and some final sax lines to finish it up track four what do you know <laughs> it's spelled with d's uh, this one kicks off with an eight measure latin groove 
with percussive chords from Barron and nice cymbal work from Brown. Smith comes in on the melody with a change-up to swing there and nice syncopated lines. It's an AABA form, but they bring back the Latin feel on the B sections. Smith continues on into a solo. A lot of good swinging melodic lines here and tumbling descending rhythmic licks. Uh, Barron follows with an energetic solo and Brown has some fun on the B section with cool Latin accents and fills underneath him. Then Brown gets some more solo action on the next round that just has accents from the others on the A sections and let's read take over with the bass on the B section. Uh, one more run through the melody to finish it up with a thick low note from Smith. Now we're going to get uh, an old tune, Prisoner of Love from 1931. This was um, music by Russ Colombo and Clarence Gaskill. It's recorded by a lot of people, Billy Eckstein and Duke Ellington, and also Perry Como. They all recorded in 1945. And of course, there's the soulful James Brown version from 1963. Uh, here, it's a ballad time, and Smith blows it breezy over the slow bass pulse from Reed and Barron's chords. Subtle brushing from Brown underneath. Reed gets a bass solo on it, letting the notes ring out. Barron's got a tasty solo on this one, too, with a light touch in the upper register. Then Smith is back with a big smoky tone and relaxed phrasing, some soloing, and then he ties it back into the melody to finish it up with a slowdown and some final sax flurries. Very tasty stuff. Track six, Pip. Hmm. And it's a funky one. Yeah. I think uh, 60s Lee Morgan with Joe Henderson kind of uh, tune. Uh, the rhythm section takes... A 16-measure intro, great bass groove from Reed, and a subdivided beat from Brown. Funky piano chords from Barron. Smith takes two rounds of the 16-measure melody that has a bluesy start and some cool chord changes in the second half. Barron solos first with simple lines and figures, exploring some harmonic possibilities and ending up with some percussive chords that hand it over to Smith. And Smith digs in and has fun on this one with uh, bluesy scoops, fast riffs, and gutsy blowing. They take it a couple times around the melody again and then groove along with some more explorative sax blowing and lines from Barron to an ending with a thudding bass figure from Reed. It just sort of plops down and ends. Track seven is uh, Wardell. And uh, this is Smith's original. It's a tribute to Count Basie tenor player Wardell Gray. That's an easy swinging tune with a happy 12-measure melody blown by Smith from the top, right from the get-go when it opens up. Catch the nice rhythmic change-up in the fifth and sixth measures in the bass. They go around twice, and Smith continues on for a swinging solo. Great melodic phrasing in there. And Baron keeps it swinging with a solo of nicely articulated high register lines and punchy left-hand accented chords. They take a couple rounds with uh, starting four-measure phrases to let Brown finish the last eight with drum soloing, and they finish it up with two more melody runs. Track eight, another Smith original, Out Into the Daylight. It's a super fun, speedy tune. Uh, the 16-bar intro has rising phrases that start on progressively lower notes for four bars and then drum soloing for four more. Uh, two rounds of that and then the speedy 64-measure AABA melody. The A section has eight measures of stop time under Smith's boppy melody and then a switch to walking bass for the next eight with cool modulations in the last four measures of the melody line. The B section is an airy contrast with more intervallic sax lines and chimey piano over one note pulsing bass. One more round of the A section and Barron's up first for a solo with nicely connected speedy lines that keep the walking bass through the solos all the sections and Smith follows swinging hard with great melodies and some bluesy licks into four bar exchanges with Brown's drums. 
Back to the melody on the B section with some varied articulation or fingering on the sax. I'm not sure exactly how he's uh, doing it because I'm not a sax player, but it's a nice little touch I noticed when they go around the second half of the section and a final A section to finish it up. Track nine, another original bluey, B-L-U-E-Y, hmm. and someone snaps it in to a drum kit and the rhythm section takes a 12-bar intro with some bluesy piano from Baron. Then Smith comes in with the minor blues melody around twice. Uh, the bluesy cry at the start is kind of a Stanley Turrentine uh, <laughs> kind of uh, lick, but it also reminds me a lot of that Jason Marshall tune, Ms. Garvey, Ms. Garvey. You know, that kind of cry out there. <laughs> mm. uh, anyway, he continues on for a gutsy solo, some high cries, double-time phrases sprinkled in, and Baron has a solo next and works some relaxed, well-connected melodic lines backed by bluesy chords. Reed gets a bass solo with a good bite and melodic direction again, and they end it with another run through the melody and a final phrase repeats to a saxy finish. We're going to end up with the final Smith original called Snow Off Broadway. This one has a unique kind of fast samba feel, uh, starting off with uh, this cool unison interval figures of the melody. Uh, it's a light clicky drum beat and bass pulse drive to it underneath Smith's melody. It's a 32 measure melody, but it's kind of similar halves. I'm wondering if this is a contrafact of uh, there'll never be another you. That's what it sounds like to me. Uh, maybe we'll find out. Mm. But check out the speedy triplets at the end of the sax melody and the extra two measures inserted for the solo break. Energetic solos from Smith and Baron and a final melody run to finish it up. So there you have it. This is great meat and potatoes, bop and hard bop music here. Or maybe they say bangers and mash uh, if it comes from across the ocean. Anyway, if you love classic 50s and 60s jazz, you need to hear this. Uh, Smith has absorbed that sax tradition, and it comes through his playing on every tune, a full husky tone, creative and energetic solos, fun original tunes that could have been written back in those times, but they still sound really fresh now. And Baron Reed and Brown fit the mood perfectly, have great synergy and energetic solos all around too. Highly recommend. Yeah, I thought so too. This was like a really, again, sunny album, uplifting, full of the joy of living, I said. It, mm. it kind of put me in mind, like you had mentioned, you know, bop, but it's not like a, the aggressive kind of bop. It's just kind of that the style. Yeah, it's it's an it's kind of a easy appealing listen i can't imagine these well not really i was thinking like you know how woody allen uses those old jazz tunes in his movies they these this had that same mood but it's it's a different era so i just wanted to, i just it just put me in mind of that the feeling mm. i get when i hear those i noticed that the saxophone when he solos he, he really he's a very melodic player and even when he solos he's kind of staying around the basic feel of the theme he just doesn't take it into any really weird di directions it's very melodic playing and not mm. you know he doesn't really go for the show-offy virtuosity which i really liked it's a very musical album from beginning to end yeah. the ensemble is all well matched they all take turns in the spotlight they're all pretty modest in their soloing and have good phrasing and melodic qualities i think they're really sticking to that uh songfulness and um yeah music the way i describe this album is just, it's highly musical and there's nothing not to like it lifted me up Oh, this would be one I, I'm going to want to get to, I think. Yeah, right in that mm. great tradition pocket. Uh, yeah. All those you know, great players absorbed and made to sound fresh today. Right. I'm glad people are still, you know, you don't have to have 
weird time signatures and all kinds of strange yeah. things to put out a engaging album. And uh, you know, this is just all of the favorites uh, for uh, bebop, hard bop, and uh, good original tunes that are easy to get a hold of right on the first listen. Right. So, yeah, check it out. Now, this next album, I just want to say I was very entertained by it, and now I know I'm going to be entertained again by listening to you. Try to explain it to us. <laughs> All right, yeah. Well, This is like me doing the Bornstein. It was hard to talk about. This yeah, this is not going to be explainable in the same yeah. way because uh, we don't have yeah. any standards or tunes composed in a, a recognizable AABA or some format with a bridge. Right. These are all original compositions and unique arrangements, yeah. very spontaneous, which is what makes this recording attractive. Yeah, and high energy too, I should mention. High energy, yeah. and, uh, hence the name, High Octet. Yeah, well, well named. <laughs> yeah, from the Octet La Nocturne from France. And this is on Odredeck Records, and uh, you could say it's somewhat Mingus-like in inspiration. Okay, I can see Came that. Out April 7th. Now, rather than being able to, you know, explain to you the structures of the tunes, and like on the last two recordings, here I feel much more like a sports announcer. You're right. Because as I'm listening to it, I'm just going play by play, and there's a lot of quick changes. I often feel like that on this podcast, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, and they're off. <laughs> so this... Uh, Octet La Nocturne formed in 2015, uh, began as a gathering of musicians passionate about the jazz of the 1950s and 60s, especially American jazz, and inspired by Charles Mingus's workshop, they wanted to play improvised jazz with a configuration and sound of a 60s octet. And so their name came from their first composition, Lost in a Nocturne, hmm. which we're going to hear on this recording. And so the description says it blends the thrills of fast-paced improvisation with subtle ranges of timbres created by an octet. And I'd say that's accurate. And it also says the tracks on the album reflect their love of great American jazzmen such as Mingus Monk Coltrane, combining hard bop aesthetic with moments of romantic lyricism. And thanks to Enrique Valverde Tenero at Odredeck for sending me the digital booklet for this because there's uh, not much information available on online with uh, yeah. the streaming. And this is there, a, this so. is a record that you really need some information for. Yeah, and I'm going to need your help with French pronunciation. Oh, okay, I'll do that. There we the go. Let's so, see what I can do here. Anyway, let's see if I can make it through the lineup here. We've got Gabriel Rigaud on piano okay. and all the compositions here. Johan Gorfra on bass, Valentin Jam on drums. That's got to be his uh, stage name. Jam. I wonder it's if just it's too cool uh, to be called yeah, Jam. I, I yeah. bet he's using the English word Jam. I wonder if it's Yam in French. I don't know. On baritone sax, Hugues Lambre, okay. as best I can do. Right. Tenor sax, Ezekiel Celada. Gabriel Fernandez on alto sax, Sami Cahune on trombone, and Olivier Duyon on trumpet. Hmm. There's your octet. Track one. Overture de Champion. <laughs> yeah. All right. As I say, this is going to be more like a play-by-play -play of what you can yeah. hear as you go through this. So Overture of Champions is what that would yeah. mean. Yeah. It's a big booming start here with an intro of percussive rhythmic piano chords and kick drum at a stately tempo. It makes almost a gospel-like atmosphere 
as you hear the first of many enthusiastic vocal cries also on the recording in the background. And Duyon leads in the horns with a rising cry with the half-valve slide-up in the phrase on the trumpet. The saxes have longer notes below with a fat berry sax tone, which really fills out the horns down there. The horns swell more together with trombone added into the trumpet as the beat presses forward with bass pulses. That kind of evaporates into a rubato alto sax phrases over pretty piano trickles and bass, and then it builds over rumbling piano lines and new clicky drum beats form with swirling horn lines around the sax's crying lines. Things thicken into more stately horn lines like in the beginning, and then a softer section of sax, and then some lines from the trumpet. There's a moment of held chaos with <laughs> the horns squabbling before the trumpet's released to soar again into a truly piano cadence. Then Rigaud continues on with some solemn and religious-feeling piano backed by chords and voices of Ah, really not yeah, there's vocalizations throughout vocalizations, this album, really. Yeah. And bass and drums swell it into sax lines set against simpler brass lines, and it makes a stately push to a big ending. Yeah, this is like a bouillabaisse, all these pieces. They have all, yeah. all these different ingredients in there, you know? Yeah. Quick turns. Uh, yeah. A thrill a minute on this recording. Yeah. All right, track two. Ah, bon? Which would ah, bon? kind of translate as, like, oh, really, I guess? <laughs> this is what we would say. Really? <laughs> and marked with a question mark and exclamation point. Right. Yeah. This starts out with four measures of soft hi-hat. Uh, then there's a playful exchange of alternating notes between the bass and trombone. Cajone quotes Art Blakey's moaning on the <laughs> trombone. Then he lets some growls rip out, <laughs> continuing on with minor and bluesy ideas, joined by sax interjections into lines that swell to a hit. He continues on soloing on a trombone. The other horns get a blast and syncopated staccato hits into more building lines behind him. There's thick building phrases of horns and piano chords that push it into more of a steady bass walk for horn exchanges with the trombone for a section. And then it's back to more sparse trombone over the bass that's just on one and three. You're going to get that change up in feels. It's sort of this uh, tentative one and three, and then moving into full walking on each beat. There's nice little fills from Rigaud, and it gets back to the steady bass walk then for the trombone to work it up into high cries. Rigaud gets some rapid-fire repeated notes into a piano solo with a little Ellington-esque upward flourish. Hmm. Catch that. There's a nice little touch there. And then Godfrey gets a bass solo next. It's bluesy, slidey, with some speedy licks, too. He remembers the moaning lick a little bit at the end into a bendy note. A drum roll brings back the trombone and shouts from the band with big horn hits, too, to another swinging melody section. The ending is a lot of fun with big horn section hold. Then there's some thundering drums and final trombone cries into vocal yelps and <laughs> an ending of dangerous piercing horn stabs to finish it up there's a lot of winks on this track you know yeah. like yeah and also it opens with that you know i'd mentioned that like you hear it again here this is like two times in one week it's like unbelievable i've hit the jackpot so the third track which means um at the end of a moment yeah 
All right, drums beat this one into a big swinging horn arranged intro. Uh, it gets held for a moment before, I believe it's Salada, releases into the swinging melody on tenor sax. Are there cool rhythmic change-ups to a kind of a 6-8 feel as uh, little backing horn figures come in? The tempo drops away for exchanges of tenor sax and horns. Things get swinging again and then change up for a bit to the 6-8 feel for a while. Uh, the tenor continues on with more bouncy groove in the bass, drums, and piano. Then the sax gets speedy and intense as it breaks into swing again with building horn backing lines. A rigo follows with the piano solo, back to the tenor, and then horn figure exchanges for a section. Then the tenor melody is back, swinging, and then even more press to the end. Things slow and lighten for a nicely harmonized sax backing, and then a delicate ending with the sax over pretty piano ascending lines. All right, track four, La Première Colline, which means the first hill. Well, Rigaud starts this out solo with tricky repeated rhythmic piano figures that outline alternating chords, and that's joined by bass and drums. I, this sounds like a 7-8 rhythm. If you listen really carefully, you can hear the drum click on 4 and 7. On top of that, Duyong adds a contrasting lyrical trumpet, or maybe he's on flugelhorn here because uh, it sounds nice and fluffy with this melody line. Trombone adds a harmony to that, and it builds with sax lines coming in as well. The rhythm breaks up for a section with exchanges of flowing alto sax and other horn lines, and then it resumes again. The pattern repeats into berry sax lines, exchanging with descending sax lines that create a laughing effect. <laughs> it's really kind of uh, cute. There's a lot of cool stuff on this, yeah. really. And that carries into a speeding up of the tempo with some horn growling and meandering until a fast 7-4 tempo settles in with ominous downbeat hits from piano and berry sax. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> really, really smacks you there. Uh, the saxes whoop, repeated rising licks, and the trumpet and trombone add phrases as it builds up with shouts. Uh, there's some slowdowns for more emphatic horn hits and slower lines before a really dangerous sax solo here. I think it's Salada. Great cries and horn backing at the end. Uh, Rigaud brings in some ominous piano chords over a different drum beat uh, into thick horn arrangements. It works back to the horn lines over the ominous berry sax and piano chords with a lot of shouts. And the horns smear up higher and higher into an unexpected cute section of even beat 4-4 four four lines over the bass. It slows down, and then there's a dreamy change to just trumpet over piano at a slow 4-4 four, four meter, joined by bass and drums. Really nice lyrical playing from Duyon on trumpet here. Those tricky rhythmic piano figures from the beginning come back as the beat transforms, and it swells with horn lines and ends with some dreamy alto sax and berry sax lines, as we heard before, and then a soft unwinding of those rhythmic piano figures from Rigaud. Quite an arrangement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Track five. I can even read this one. Lost in an Octave. Yeah, there you go. This is the first one they wrote you'd said at the beginning, right. right? Okay. Yeah. Soft and slow swelling horn figures lead to what sounds to me like a soprano sax melody on this ballad, although it's not listed in the credits, so I'm not sure who's playing it. Uh, it gets thick and heavy before the sax is left to flutter and continue on its own for a bit uh, before being joined by the rhythm section again. Horn lines come in for backing with soft staccato figures that then turn to more flowing lines. Rigaud has a delicate piano solo before the horns flow in and build to the return of the soprano sax melody, and it builds heavily like before, leaves the sax solo for a little cadenza before being joined softly by the horns, bass, and drums on the last note. 
Now this next one called uh, Huile d'Olive Blues, which means olive, <laughs> olive oil blues. They, they should have gone for the English title here because I think olive oil blues sounds better. It sounds really it sounds cool, cool in English. Yeah. 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 Anyway, but it's good. <laughs> yeah, this one starts with an eight-bar intro of the horns uh, together in a big swinging arrangement. And then the main melody, which is a 12-bar blues with rhythmic alternating piano and horn lines and some chiming piano notes, giving it a Count Basie kind of jump blues feel. There's more screaming chorus into a halftime, more sassy transition section, and then back for another round of that uh, jumping 12-bar blues with a break into a trumpet solo with shouts of enthusiasm from the band. Fun backing fluttery sax lines, remember those, they come in and out as Duyon blows it out. Alto sax next with different backing lines that build up more. And next, the bass keeps walking for some drum soloing from Valentin Jam and uh, band shouts that turn into longer, funny vocal notes. Uh, it comes down soft on the drums before the halftime transition section returns with some bluesy sax soloing laid on top and a sax transition to another jumping blues section. After a shout, there's a final horn section that line that's like a slowed version of that horn riff we heard backing the trumpet solo. Uh, some hits from that build into a held horn note with some whooping it up to a final resolving blast at the <laughs> end. Uh, quite an arrangement again. Yeah, I want to say that I think olive oil blues is, I think that's an oxymoron because I never have the blues <laughs> when olive oil is involved in my in my meal there. Anyway, oh. so much for that. Could be uh, Popeye's olive oil, who knows? Oh yeah, you never know. I think she yeah. spells it differently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> She'd give me the blues, I think. Anyway, mm. la troisième variation, which is uh, the third variation. A brush drum beat in four gets it started, and the saxes come in with clipped downbeat notes and longer phrases every fourth measure with the bass. Uh, that pattern keeps going, with trumpet and trombone adding new lines and splitting off the other sax parts for longer phrases. It builds to a bouncy climax, and the tenor sax is off on a new melody line in unison with piano. It's cute and playful. After another horn buildup, a slower swooping sax section flows through for a bit before another bouncy horn arrangement leads to a swinging tenor sax solo with nice breathy tone. Uh, next are some eight-bar piano and bass exchanges. Rigaud starts out with a playful, rapid, repeated note idea, and then the next time, some Ellington-esque triplet figures into bluesy ideas. Uh, they go on with horns, adding backing hits and building into more swooping lines and build up like before. There's a big New Orleans-style bash that develops uh, for some exchanges with playfully dissonant rhythmic piano to a final happy ending. Yeah. Yeah, I don't even know Opel what this means. <laughs> Corsa tuning. Well, Opel Corsa is a uh, German super mini car. Oh, okay. And so you're going to get a lot of uh, humorous car effects yeah. here. Okay. Uh, it begins with rapid, repeated piano notes that get injected with kick drum hits. Horns come in with revving engine and horn noises. Hmm. <laughs> that changes in a flash to a cool, tight uh, horn soli section to over this really tight hi-hat and rim click beat. A shout count transitions to a new heavier section of horns and drumming. Cool downward spiraling sax lines and more passing horn lines work into a bouncy swing. Rigaud gets some bouncy piano lines and then more like a wind bend, a straight horn melody. I don't know. I thought it was the German national anthem for a minute there, but maybe it's another tune that I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Uh, that comes along before it works back into the tight horn soli idea. Uh, the horns clear out, leaving a clicky beat for some synchronized bass and left-hand piano lines 
with more rhythmic right hand piano chords on top. And it goes into some more heartbeat like bass uh, for improvised and flowing piano from Rigaud. A change up to swing with walking bass as Rigaud continues on. And next is back to that clicky beat with rhythmic horn lines backing a big berry sax solo that also transitions over to swing with walking bass as it goes along. A revival of the horn soli section comes back and another shout count brings the earlier heavy beat horn blasts with sax spirals back and it finishes up with the kind of brass bandy type of uh, wind melody there at the end. Yeah, they like their uh, shout counts, don't they? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a lot of them on this album. It's very enthusiastic. Yeah, they're an enthusiastic ensemble all the way through. You're not going to get settled into any tempo or section for too long before there's a big change coming. I, I think some kind of like speed type drug was uh, used <laughs> in the making of this recording. It could I don't be. Know. I'll yeah. just or put that out there and see if anybody espresso. says something about yeah. it. Or espresso, it's possible <laughs> yeah. too. Uh, track nine, La Marche Nocturne. Nocturne, yes. which means um, nocturnal walk. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. This one's got softly ringing repeated minor piano chords to uh, get it going before a sparse and longing trombone line comes on top. Mm -hmm. It builds with swooping sax lines and growls in the trombone with bass and drums entering subtly. And the tune swells, kind of getting a little into a major theme with stronger beat and also a trumpet melody. And things get rhythmic with sax lines and a heavy beat for a blaringly bluesy trombone solo. Then Barry Sax solo follows with a nice subdivided beat under that and swelling horn lines. Back to the longing trombone and swelling horns uh, for a little while before the heavy beat returns and more raucous trombone and horns with a pause for some final solo vocals <laughs> before uh, the end of the tune comes. So uh, they got their last little vocal uh, spot in there. Anyway, that's it. It's an enthusiastic and exciting recording. Uh, the octet can sound like a mini big band when it's at its biggest. Uh, you get a good mix of great horn arrangements, but also that kind of spontaneous improvisation that's mixed in the arrangement, kind of like you get in a lot of Mingus's ensembles. There are a lot of different influences from American jazz here. Mingus, a little bassy, and it's all pulled off with uh, that kind of French flair and a sense of fun. There's lots of moods from lyrical to frenzied, exciting solos all around. You've got all the timbres of these different instruments mixing together in interesting ways and the constant change in rhythms and directions in the arrangement before you get too settled into any one groove makes for an exciting listen and a difficult explanation but yeah. uh, it is spontaneous and exciting the way jazz should be so it's definitely something that'll get your foot tapping and uh, make you sit up and listen yeah, certainly, you know, hard to explain, but, you know, meant to be listened to and uh, an enjoyable experience at that. I think this might be the uh, most unusual album, jazz album anyway, we've ever talked about on this podcast. Oh, certainly really? this year. Oh, I don't know. This year, maybe. You don't think, yeah. you think we've had some odd ones? No, I've had it some was pretty, odd ones. <laughs> no, it's just the quick changes and the, just the enthusiasm yeah. made it really stand out for me. And it, it did stand out. I just want to make that. It was a really fun album. And I kind of associated it in my mind with the the Bornstein like piano concerto album because of these quick oh. changes that just happen. Right. Well, they're not spontaneous in the Bornstein, but they're they're su you're supposed to sound that way when you perform them. Yeah, the arrangements were creative. There's a lot of humor 
on this album. This is why I thought it was kind of a unique because we hear we've heard humor uh, humor in albums, jazz albums before on the podcast, but this one this is way <laughs> out, out front in this one. There's some like humor and things like sighing note bends and surprising outbursts. Um, they give a creative angle to these um, jazz styles, and they sound like they're having a lot of fun doing it. Obviously, they, they can't yeah. be missed. It certainly kept me on my toes. I can say that. <laughs> okay. I think it's hard to pull off this kind of mix of very intricate arrangements yeah. with so many different sections and changes of grooves and, you know, very intricate horn lines with that spontaneous sort of space for solos that overlap the lines and uh, sound fresh and, uh, and to pull that off while having a good time and not being nervous about uh, if it's all going to come together. You know, it's quite a feat, but they do it really well. I'm trying to come up with a new term to describe these uh, really fast, sudden, and uh, constant changes. I, I'm kind of going for like quick uh, internet era changes. We'll see what that involves into. <laughs> but in this album, what happens between all these changes is is pretty mind-filling. I kind of mm. <laughs> feel like somebody's like, Spraying some kind of like uh, something into, into my brain there and just filling it up with uh, stuffing or something. It's really great. Um, my favorite yeah. track on this album was Wheel to Leave Blues with its jumping rhythm and high spirits. The playing on this album is really skillful too, and it's a great sounding album. Mm. You're really um, transparent and uh, present. Yeah, thanks to Odredek for that. Um, they yeah. put out good stuff. Of course, Spiral Trio, one of our favorite albums from last year. Right. From our all Oh, they put that to out me. too, right. Yeah, is on this. Yeah, label, we also did so. um, the the Iberia piano album, not right. not the one, not the piano piece by Albanese, but uh, there was one by Odredek that, that we did right. last year too. Yeah, because they do classical as well. So skillful playing, and uh, the band doesn't shy away from goofy humor. Even <laughs> they're like these mock funereal tones on the last track, and they come across as uh, rather humorous too. Hmm. Yeah, this was really uh, unique, let's say, and that's it's one I'm gonna want to hear again. So I'm kind of interested in this one too. And I bet this would be a real engaging live performance to see. I bet, yeah. In matters of degree over uh, just listening to the record. It's got to be visually entertaining, too. I just want to say, any jazz musicians out there, if you're coming to Japan, make sure you play in Kansai, like Osaka or somewhere like that, because most people just go to Tokyo, and that's far away for us. We, uh, <laughs> we want you coming down here, if you yeah, can. You'll definitely get more enthusiastic audiences in Kansai, too. You know, if you like polite clapping, you can get that in Tokyo. But uh, if you want to get true, a, really? Yeah. I do know the Osaka audiences are really enthusiastic. Yeah. But... <laughs> a more enthusiastic audience. Come to Kansai. All right. That's going to wrap up this uh, episode of Adult Music 111. And uh, before we sign off, remember those other podcasts I mentioned to you. You can find links to them in the podcast description. Also, when we finish up speaking here, there'll be little uh, promo clips from them at the end of the episode. So please stay on and check those out as well. And thanks, as always, to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. Any preview for uh, next week's episode there, Mike? Next week, I'm going for orchestral. And it's going to be light orchestral, so nothing Brooknerian or heavy next week. It's, okay. uh, I think it'll be an enjoyable orchestral experience for all. That's all I'm going to tell you so far. I haven't decided yet. I've got some stuff kind of set aside for our American and guitar 
episodes. Yeah. We're gonna do the American coming. one soon. I've got some. Yeah. That's that's gonna be an interesting one. I've got three contemporary composers that I really want to hear and talk about, and okay. one of them is uh, the new album by um, Yuja Wang, who's one of the really great right. uh, virtuoso pianists out there. Not only is she like a great just virtuoso pianist, but she um, she plays adventurous music as well. She doesn't just kind of stick to the classics. Right. And, uh, so she's just done an all American album that, that hmm. I really want to talk about. So that would be one. That's not next week, though. That's going to be whenever okay. we do our American episode. Maybe I'll go for some uh, interesting combinations of instruments next week uh, to round things out. I've got okay. a lot to pick from because uh, March and April were good months of releases. So if you want to find mm -hmm. out what all those recordings are, a few hours after this episode gets published, I'll have the playlist up on Deezer and also a link to it on Facebook. So you can come over and check that out. And uh, also on Facebook, I always give the timestamps for each recording if you want to jump to a certain discussion. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, those will be available now on the Podbean app or from Podbean website as well. I don't think those timestamps uh, carry over into other places where you can listen to the podcast. Anyway, just another little feature that they're adding in there. We'll see you again next week for episode 112. And until then, have a good week and keep listening. Gerald Albright, Rhea Schneider, Charlie Hunter, Luke Robillard, Sean Jones, Walter Beasley, Steve Swallow. Something Came From Baltimore is a jazz, blues, and R&B podcast and radio show, and it's not really about Baltimore. Subscribe to the podcast and listen to your favorite artist or future favorite artist that Something Came From Baltimore and be a part of that Be More music scene. Joe Lovano, Jeff Coffin, Paula Cole, Denuso Makatani, Ann Passio, Chess Smith, Thumbscrew, mostly. Hi, jazz fans. This is the founder and host of Neon Jazz, Joe Domino. It's both a weekly radio show and interviews with musicians from all over the world, like the Netherlands, New York City, and back to Kansas City, the home of Neon Jazz, covering the rich history and modern world of jazz in a fresh way, featuring interviews with the likes of Arturo Sandoval, Sonny Rollins, Maria Schneider, and countless others. Find our weekly show on Mixcloud. Subscribe to the interviews via iTunes and YouTube. We are Neon Jazz. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you. Thank you.